0: Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake.
1: There are new dreams, crowding out old realities. There's revolution, sweeping in life a fresh new breeze. Let the old world make believe. It's blind and up. But nothing can change the shape.
2: To come. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And this is Tom. I am Brief Bionic. I told him we had to be brief on this because Very we brief. have a long segment. You're not, you're segment, not talking fast enough. Our first segment faster. with our uh, one of our great scholars who comes on our show, William Grigg. Uh, author of Freedom and Eclipse, is going to talk this week about evidence of a growing military state in America Mm -hmm. and the proper roles of law enforcement and Christian perspective.
3: Well, without further ado, you want to just go?
2: Well, I guess so. You know who William Gregg is. You know what you're in for. Be sure and copy these shows. You're going to love them. But with no further ado, here's William Gregg, and we'll be right back to talk about it further on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bilek. And we have... One of our very favorite people back with us uh, Mm -hmm. tonight in a very critically important show that we're going to have. Um, Mr. Will Grigg is going to join us, who's the author of Freedom in Eclipse. And we're going to talk about evidence of a growing military state in America and the proper roles of law enforcement and Christian perspective. Another slow day. How's that for a a mouthful? (laughs) Uh, Mr. Grigg, I want to welcome you back again for another visit to Future Quake.
4: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and a blessing. Well, yeah. it
2: is a privilege to have uh, someone of your caliber on our show. Yeah. As one of our favorite and most prolific guests over the last year or so, uh, I'm going to forego any kind of opening discussion of your background and rather refer our newer listeners uh, to our archive of audio files of our earlier interviews with you, which are at futurequick.com, uh, because we we have a lot to cover, and if they want to know any more about you, they can go there for some information. Um, What's important today in our discussion is that in addition to being one of the most prominent thinkers, intellectuals, and writers in the world today, much less in the Christian community, uh, you have a particular expertise and a common focus in your Pro Libertate blog uh, on the recent deterioration of our law enforcement and legal institutions, uh, much of which is documented in your book, Liberty and Eclipse. Uh, to begin our... Uh, excuse me, to... Uh, Get get our regular listeners uh, up to speed here. Uh, Some of the various bits of information we cover here will be uh, familiar to them in our discussion. have come up in earlier shows. Uh, But we will be uh, putting this information in some historical and and also newer developments into an overall framework in the discussion. So this is going to be an important show of sort of putting a big picture together. And uh, with the help of uh, yourself uh, as one who has the foresight to see the big picture. Uh, this topic. And uh, for our listeners, I just want you to know this series of shows will be something... ...that you're going to want to copy and to share with other people uh, and to give out to those people who don't yet grasp the, the dire state of our country uh, right now... And, uh, ...and what the Bible says our true roles as Christians are uh, about these issues and how to address and relate to it. So that's my little opening preamble there, uh, Mr. Gregg. Uh, to begin by laying the uh, foundations of our discussion uh, regarding the role of law enforcement in society, could you define what you believe is the proper purpose... And scope, civilian law enforcement is intended to have in society uh, as defined by common and natural law, which has been acknowledged for centuries, uh, the best traditions we have historically, and the framework of our own national governing and authoritative, authoritative document, the U.S. Constitution.
4: The last part of that question actually is what I'll begin with because the Constitution makes it pretty clear, to paraphrase James Madison, that those things having to do with the maintenance of public order – in a given community, that is to say a state or a county or a city, is to be local in nature. And most, that is to say the bulk of what we now call law enforcement activities were within the express reserve powers of the states particularly. Uh, That's something that Madison pointed out when he said that the powers assigned by the Constitution to the general government, the central government, would be few and defined, and those remaining with the states would be numerous and indefinite. And among those numerous and indefinite powers would be all those pertaining to what we now call law enforcement. The way that law enforcement traditionally operated in our country for most of its history until about the 1920s was that somebody who was designated a peace officer would be a common citizen with the specialized function of supplementing the natural rights of the citizens to protect themselves through armed self-defense. Most of the frontier communities and even some of the communities that grew and expanded during the early and mid-19th century didn't have professional police forces. They would often have posses. You'd have a sheriff. The sheriff actually carries out an office which goes, in terms of its roots, back into the antiquity of Anglo-Saxon tradition as the Shireeve or the ruler of the Shire. And the sheriff of a county was the paramount law enforcement officer as far as the government was concerned. And he would summon a posse into existence when it was necessary. He would deputize citizens as he saw fit to carry out their functions. But for the most part, he was simply acting as something of a supplemental safeguard, if you will, uh, to complement what the citizens did by way of protecting themselves.
2: Mr. Gregg, can I I ask you then, it sounds a lot like... They would actually uh, draft citizens to do this role much like a jury where where they were chosen to to do an important role in determining guilt or innocence, which is an extremely important duty, but but the common citizen was found adequate and, in fact, the best choice for that. And it sounds like to me you you have someone who who properly knows and understands the enforcement of the law uh, and is in a proper position to pick other citizens to assist in that role just like picking a jury.
4: Just like picking a jury, actually that's that's a very good analogy. When you take a look at the way the posses were organized, the way the citizens were deputized, the assumption being that somebody who was chosen as a sheriff, by whatever means the local community would go about selecting a person for that role, was somebody who had a specialized function, but he was not set apart as part of a professional cast separate from the common run of the community. It's just that that was his occupation, was to provide help for the rest of the community. It was assumed that most people would be armed. And in this scenario, and of course, that's the case with most of the communities that existed, particularly in the West, during the expansion of the United States in the 19th century. Uh, There's a fascinating book by a lawyer from Oklahoma whose name eludes me right now called Tough Towns that talks about a number of instances where you had, as late as the 1930s, uh, situations where armed citizens spontaneously would rally to repel assaults by professional criminal gangs, including the Doolin-Dalton Gang and some of the notorious gangs of the early Depression era. And they almost always did this before law enforcement showed up, whether you're talking about the local sheriff or the marshal. These people would simply go back to their homes and gather their firearms then muster spontaneously as sort of an informal militia and chase the bank robbers or the criminals out of their, out of their community. And it's really quite a, a fascinating study when you realize that now we're told that that's the last thing we should do,
5: mm-hmm. that this
4: contributes to the general anarchy of society if you have people taking the law into their own hands. Well, folks, the law belongs in our own hands. That's the American tradition. And it's only a recent innovation, quite frankly, I consider it a form of constitutional apostasy, that we would alienate that power into the hands of a professional police cast.
2: You know, that's fascinating mm-hmm. yeah. when I think about that that, that, that people would be afraid of anarchy... When, when really totalitarianism is a is a fear that should trump the fear of anarchy.
4: I would certainly think so. Yeah. Because
2: because of its ability to to organize uh, forces and, and be able to point them in a directive in an area. And, you know that was the same thinking I had. I knew some some of our listeners might be thinking, Oh no, what happens if you get some vindictive neighbors against you? You know, and they've been deputized. And you know there could be some bad instances that happen. But sure. how much worse could it be? Uh, when you have the capability to uh, centralize power and have an organized force against everyone, at least when you decentralize it, you decentralize the evil that can be done to a very small and localized level.
4: Yeah, and of course we're still confronted with the intestable reality of, of original sin and, and fallen nature. We're talking about the best of bad alternatives here. It's right. been said that mm-hmm. from the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was ever made you're not going to find some elevated purified class of people who can magically be called upon to serve as fair and impartial and omnicompetent law enforcement assets of the of the government they're made of the same stuff that we're made out of right. and we were more candid about that as a nation 100 years ago or 120, 130 years ago than we are today. There's this assumption that when we put somebody into a state issued costume and hand them a piece of costume jewelry and a gun, that somehow purifies him and exalts him above the common run of humanity when actually he's made out of the same stuff and he's granted a certain dangerous form of impunity that actually multiplies the amount of damage that can be done if there are not really strong check reins on what that individual can do in the name of the state.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking of, of of examples like that. Uh you know, uh we have a right with a jury to be tried by a jury of our peers. Yes. And it seems like we we should also have a right to have the law enforced on us by our own peers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh and and when when your neighbor has to look you in the eye, when their kids go to school with your kids, uh when they've been involved with you in different civic events, um, they 're going to be very very careful in how they apply the law to you if the yeah. ju- if it has to be done, it has to be done but they they 're going to do it with a level of decency you know and i I think of something like uh, like Mayberry uh, you know where y- mm-hmm. y- you have the law enforcement that grew up in the neighborhood and I always tried to find a solution that that could actually maintain the peace
4: yeah, if you study actually the accounts of some of the more Noteworthy law enforcement people, in uh, some of the figures of legend, whether you talk about somebody even like a Wyatt Earp, who was certainly uh, a medley of discordant fragments of personality. I mean, he was not all dark or all light. He was, like most of us, a mixture of both. Uh, he had his failings as well as his, his points of nobility. Uh, there's a very strong... A case to be made on the basis of the scholarly literature that at one point in his life he was a horse thief, which is something I'm certainly not going to argue on behalf of here. But if you take a look at at the career of Wyatt Earp, when he was a a police officer in Dodge, uh, one of the things that he was required to do was to police the streets. He would literally be handed a push broom and uh, a large uh, garbage receptacle, and he would police the streets and it was understood that uh, he would try to de-escalate a situation, and he became notorious for pistol-whipping people as opposed to shooting them. He was perhaps a little bit too enthusiastic about sneaking up behind somebody and knocking him cold with the butt of a gun, but that, of course, stands in stark contrast with the idea that you should simply shoot somebody if there's some suspicion that that person's involved in some kind of illegal activity, and that was by and large the tradition of law enforcement through perhaps the 1960s, uh, if you take a look at some of the the uh, cinematic figures, such as Buford Pusser, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, he was somebody Buford who, Aaron. yeah, Buford Pusser, Once again, a flawed person, a somewhat yeah. colorful, larger than life man, but by and large, he specialized in de-escalating situations by virtue of his of his individual authority, his gravitas, and his very impressive physical stature. He would often walk into a bar and, without needing to pull a gun or even carry a gun with him. Or even his legendary shillelagh, that large club that he would carry with him. Is sometimes. that
2: what that was called? <laughs> no,
4: that's the Irish cops' <laughs> expression for that. <laughs> but with that, with that, the the axe handle that became sort yeah. of his totem, uh, he could settle he could settle down a crowd uh, just by yeah. virtue of his commanding presence. Now, right. and that was the ideal. And in some communities, still today, notwithstanding all the bad influences on law enforcement, you still have responsible, conscientious law enforcement officers who try to de-escalate situations rather than simply overwhelming people with, with overwhelming force. Unfortunately, the doctrine of overwhelming force right now is pretty much the operative doctrine in most law enforcement departments in this country. And that comes out of the military mindset, not out of the tradition of civilian well, peace, officer, peace officer training.
2: You're getting ahead of me here because you, you have Sorry. actually anticipated many a number of my questions, and that probably means because I've read your blog for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, but in closing on this question, can you comment again on anything specifically? I, we mentioned the Constitution. Anything mm-hmm. specifically in that document that refers to the law enforcement Aspects Uh, Certainly there were certain rights that were guaranteed and and other things like that by the state. Any means by which to enforce those rights, except for the courts, of course, uh, a a physical arm of of enforcement?
4: Well, the due process guarantees in the Bill of Rights, and there are a couple that mention the Constitution, the most important of which is the habeas corpus guarantee, uh, have to do with the administration of justice, which is, of course, the objective of law enforcement is where there has been a crime committed against persons or property, then you have to find some way of bringing suspects to book and submit them to justice as administered by a jury of their peers in the context of these due process guarantees. The most important of the structural guarantees here with respect to keeping this power diffuse have to do, first of all, with the Second Amendment and the role that the militia plays as well as the role of the armed citizenry in keeping power diffused. And once again, James Madison was very emphatic on this point. The ultimate purpose of the right to keep and bear arms, as he pointed out in the Federalist Papers, was to provide the people with the means of repelling the unlawful aggression committed by their government. And the militias that existed at the time that the republic was founded, that the the confederation of 13 uh, constitutional republics came into existence. The militias were intended to provide a physical bulwark against aggression from the central government. You cannot disarm the people because of the people that disarm, them, the states no longer have the militias. Without the militias, of mm-hmm. course, you have all power concentrated in the central government in precisely the way that the founders st- sought to avoid. They saw this as probably the paramount question of preventing uh, the consolidation of power that they, that they opposed – they opposed a standing army, and they took severe measures that they incorporated into the Constitution as a way of preventing the military from coalescing into a standing army. The most obvious of which is the fact that the appropriations for the army can't be longer than two years duration. You can only fund the army for two years, which means they could defund the army if they were afraid that the army was going to be turned against the people.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And of course, you have in the third article, or rather the third amendment the prohibition against quartering troops
5: in Mm -hmm, civilian
4: homes. That's very much a part of preventing this army of occupation dynamic from from growing. And the other thing that I find really interesting, of course, is that the central government can only use uh, the military to put down insurrections upon an application from a state government. You cannot have the central government say, aha, such and such a state is in the state of, of insurrection Uh, We're going to send the military into that state to quell this insurrection before it will spread. Well, you can't do that according to the Constitution. You have to wait until the states petition for that type of intervention in order to to preserve a Republican form of government in a given state. Mm -hmm. And these were all, I think, reflections of the the fact that the founders understood the ways that the maintenance of public order could actually conduce toward the creation of tyranny because they'd lived through that in the 1760s. They'd lived through the – administration of an occupation where the Redcoats were basically the police on behalf of, of this distant government uh, across the Atlantic.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I get the feel that the suggestion is is that uh, federal troops were, were almost to be of an ad hoc nature as yeah. the need ar- arose, which reflects back to the days in, in the Old Testament during the days of the judges when people mm-hmm. were predominantly consumed with raising crops for their families – and only when a threat arose, an external threat arose, did they call up people from the different families to, on an ad-, ad hoc nature, go you know uh, knock off or, or push back the enemy and then go back to your mm-hmm. farming. And, and then when the people decided they wanted a king, like the other surrounding nations, you know the first concern that the, that the Lord says is, you know, he's going to tax you to death when you do that, and he's also going to conscript your children, yeah. and uh, been put them been... to whatever his purposes he wants.
4: Yeah, exactly right. You had in the the pre uh the pre monarchical period in ancient Israel, you had this loose confederacy of patriarchal tribes that were all subject to the to the laws that were dictated by God through Moses, and those laws were applied by judges, and you had the, the priests who were ministering the, the rights of the law and the other community that was somewhat similar in its organization uh, was ancient Rome in the very early years of its republic, where you would have primarily a a quasi-patriarchal system, where from time to time, somebody would be appointed a leader of this still rather diffuse and and decentralized Roman society uh, for the purpose of leading the armies to battle, and then like Cincinnatus, he would repudiate his power and put his hand back to the plow. That's why George Washington was referred to as the American Cincinnati, is that he very famously did not want to be in charge of the government. He knew that they were creating the office of president for him, but he wanted to go back home, and finally he was permitted to do that at the end of his uh, two terms as president. And he repudiated power. It was the nobility of repudiating power that made him so noteworthy, and that was reflective of that ancient Roman tradition. But more importantly, as you point out, the biblical paradigm that informed practically everything that the founders did when they were putting the constitution together. They understood the need to keep power decentralized that way. And they understood the temptation toward monarchy was almost always bound up with the imperial temptation. We want to be like other nations. We want to have a king who will lead us into battle. And with that comes radical changes, not only in the way that you treat other countries, but also in the way the power is organized domestically. And it always ends up with the government that it, in some senses at war with the rights and liberties of the people it governs.
2: And it only took a few kings. Here they had Saul, David, Solomon, and then his son yep. to, to get the taxes and the oppression to be so overwhelming mm-hmm. that it resulted in a split of the kingdom be- yeah. because they were just under, they were probably under worse oppression than what they had under Pharaoh in some aspects. Yeah. By That's, their own choice.
4: Exactly mm. right. And the, the thing I find really interesting about that. Um, if you take a look at uh, some of the writings of the early patristic fathers of the Christian Church, I've been reading some of the Antonicene fathers recently, and they always refer to the, the the exile in Egypt, and they contrast that, of course, with the liberty which is promised uh, through the, the Christian gospel, and they always talk about the temptations of power and how the the Hebrews were always longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. They always wanted to make that exchange. You know, do away with what we're willing to do away with our, our our freedom if we were offered the security of living back in Egypt, and how this is always a temptation that uh, people are subject to. There are there are political consequences, and they're always talking about the spiritual consequences. You know, the the church fathers were talking about the spiritual consequences, but they said basically it's the same temptation, and that there always there's always this political tropism that you get when people start succumbing to the to the spiritual lassitude that uh, the ancient Hebrews displayed and they're always warning these Christians who were living under Roman oppression about the way that uh, if they weren't guarded and and circumspect in their spiritual lives they could succumb to that same temptation as well and one of the really important parts of this discussion that's not necessarily something having to do specifically with law enforcement or with police mechanisms, uh, is the understanding on the part of our founding fathers that there had to be a a type of Christian virtue that informed the citizenry that uh, would be present, that would prevent the consolidation of power that they were trying to avoid. They they understood that at at the foundation, the only thing really that will prevent a society from succumbing to tyranny uh, is spiritual discipline, and it's the type of sobriety that comes from understanding the truth and, and trying to seek and do God's will.
2: Well, that'll be interesting because we want to talk about that near the end of our discussion. All right. But, but it's interesting when you, when you think about the pride that comes with the uh, the whole aspect of centrality of, of power. When you, when you yeah. want a king, it starts with the pride because you, you want to be respected amongst the other nations. And then the next step in that pride is to say, I want to be imperialistic. Not only do I want to hold my own corner of the block, I want to start taking over other blocks. And and Christians these days are right in the middle of that right now and supporting that imperialism. And it's a very humble position uh, to be, as you talked about, uh, George Washington, to, to be there when the need arose and then to go back to the humble duties behind your plow. Yeah. And that is something that Christians should be more prepared to be able to take on that role and set an example for the rest of society. Hmm. And unfortunately, I don't think we have.
4: Yeah, It is a gift of God's grace, I believe, to have the type of spiritual character who would understand that true greatness comes from repudiating power and not accumulating it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that maybe one man in a millennium would understand. We just happen to have a man who was put here uh, in the the generous uh, economy of divine providence by the name of George Washington who understood that principle honestly – Uh, You can find maybe a handful of men throughout history who understood that and lived it the way that George Washington did. And that's, of course, supposed to be the signature example of what it means to be an American, which is why I find it so disturbing that people in the Christian church, as you pointed out, seem to be fixated on on glorifying the insignia of state power and on building up the power of the government on the assumption that what makes our country admirable is the power of its government rather than the freedoms that are protected by law. And that's something that, of all people, Christians should understand. We love our country not because our government is powerful, but because our country has been blessed by God, not only with incomparable wealth and natural resources and with a, a wonderful history in terms of uh, the prominence of, of the Christian faith and the ability of uh, the Christian faith to find a, a fertile field here and in a congenial home to export the gospel to other nations, but also because we've been given these institutions that are rooted in God's law. And Too many people, I think, uh, confuse the idea of of celebrating the power of government with celebrating the principles of of freedom protected by law. Christians should understand that distinction. Uh, We love our country because it's beautiful. We love our country because it has been blessed with the, this foundation of, of freedom protected by law and government power, of course, is intoxicating to many people, but as with many intoxicants, it's covering some, some really serious damage that's being done.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, you cannot be an empire abroad and a republic at home. It doesn't work that way.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: The, the institutions necessary to sustain an empire are incompatible with, with uh, small-r republican liberty.
2: We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
3: And Tom, I am the sheriff in these here parts, Bionic.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, we don't have much time to talk at the end of the show. I want to pick this up uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, but his talking at the beginning about how the real law used to be posses that were formed by sheriffs and mm-hmm. how that was a superior form. And it was
3: assumed that citizens were armed. I thought that was cool. Too. And
2: also that they were probably one of the best people to be law enforcement yeah. rather than a nameless face. So yeah. so, as he said, costumed people. Yeah. Uh, I, I find it fascinating and set the tone for the rest of the interview. Indeed. Uh, But we need to go. Merv, our costume hero, would you come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us?
6: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at Future at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
2: Okay, we really got to go. Out. Okay, come back tomorrow for the next phase. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Goodbye. Bye. Join us
0: next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.
2: Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future.
3: And I am the sheriff of these here parts, Tom Bionic.
2: What's that make me? What am I like um, Miss Kitty or something like that?
3: The NSA? I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we had a great uh, section uh, of interview yesterday with William Grigg, author of Freedom and Christ or Freedom and Eclipse, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Liberty in Eclipse. Mm-hmm. I wrote down Freedom and Eclipse. My apologies. It's Liberty and Eclipse.
3: Yeah. And Derm Derm Pugno.
2: Yeah, that's his little phrase there at the yeah. end, not Do you know what it means? Uh, no.
3: With the last breath, I will hope.
2: Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's on his blog, uh, the Pro Liberdati blog at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. It is a must-read if you have an opportunity to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about how uh, early law enforcement uh, basically comprised a sheriff and citizens who were basically deputized to help. Mm-hmm. bring about justice and, it was assumed, and how it
3: worked. Yeah, and it was assumed that the citizens were going to be an integral part of that law enforcement uh strata, you know, both being armed mm-hmm. and taking care of things. Uh one of the things that he did talk about was uh well certainly the idea that a lot of times the citizens, you know, like I said earlier, were armed, but they also tended to make posses and drive out any sort of forces that were bad. You know, before but it was they even
2: decentralized but, power.
3: Yeah, exactly. decentralized. People power couldn't take control key. of it mm-hmm. and
2: create some kind of Gestapo. Police mm-hmm. state out of it because it was average mm-hmm. citizens. It
3: was interesting, his his idea of, of Wyatt Earp, I sort of took away that uh, he brought up Wyatt Earp as sort of a flawed yet complex model of the idealized form of Republican government law enforcement, which is interesting.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: This guy who maybe wasn't perfect, Definitely but was The people.
2: Well, the key that he makes is that Mm-hmm. Is that when law enforcement is made up of a representative of your peers uh when it's decentralized, when it becomes like jury duty, like we talked about mm-hmm. uh, I think that the possibility of justice goes up. there will be localized uh you know uh corruption and things like that, but not at least institutionalized corruption mm-hmm. widespread well it I've the almost, boss hogs stay pretty small bosses
3: I have a tendency to just listen to him talk because he sounds he comes off saying all the things that I would like to say, but way smarter sounding.
2: With a lot more syllables, yeah. Too.
3: Last like using words like lassitude, yeah, and uh, you know various uh, unsundry uh, great words.
2: That just if you can enjoy it for the vocabulary <coughs> alone, I would recommend it. Yeah, I do. I do. In <laughs> fact, let's have another dose of it. Yeah. So with no further ado, here's the next segment of our interview with William Grigg, author of *Liberty and Eclipse*, and then we'll be right back to discuss it on Futurequake. That leads me into my next question because mm-hmm. you, you focused on the, um, the the positive aspects of our heritage. Uh, that lasted and, and, and held us in good stead for for many generations, but can you give us some historical examples before we talk about recent generations but, but back in our history some some historical events where, where u s federal force or, or troops were used aggressively against u s citizens uh, What were the black guys we have back in our in our old history of our country, and why do you think those instances were unacceptable?
4: i read a great deal about the way that <clears throat> the constitutional guarantees that apply to all people were perverted or got away with altogether in the treatment of the conquered Indian nations. And the fact that a lot of the discussions we've been having recently about habeas corpus and whether uh, habeas corpus guarantees extend to everybody over whom the government claims jurisdiction uh, apply to uh, the Indians. That was a, a big debate about 120, 130 years ago. But you could go to the Wounded Knee massacre of 1890 for a really good example of people being systematically disarmed as part of uh, really the consummation of a series of betrayals that were set in motion decades earlier. When they, wait, uh, weren't
2: those weren't those people NDO fascist?
4: <laughs> so, so they were treated in the journalism, the yellow journalism of the time. Yeah. They're
2: India, that, fascists, Aboriginal just,
4: fascists. They yeah. just,
2: they just plot in their own uh, little teepees to end up yeah. all of us and to slit our yeah, throats. But, yeah,
4: the, peri- the parallels are really quite exact. And actually, if if you go back and read Murray Rothbard's history of the American Revolution, uh, one of the points that he exhumed from reading a lot of the British journalism of the time was that. The British government was using the, the threat of terrorism by the Indian tribes to justify the regimentation of the colonies, uh, leading up to the Intolerable Acts that, that precipitated the revolution. So that's an old trick, of course. You know, finding finding the, the swarthy aborigines or the or, or the dusky-skinned, savagely bearded Mohammedans and using them as this eternal threat to justify expansion of government power. You're but, saying
2: George W. didn't have a new thought? when he came up with
4: that. <laughs> Sounds like you read the i I've documented he had a thought new, older, or anywhere <laughs> in between. <laughs> with respect to some of the other things that happened, uh, in the 1920s, uh, you had right after World War One, which was, of course, World War One was a huge orgy of government growth where you had uh, the government deputizing the federal government. Now, this is really problematic. Deputizing vigilance committees to root out what was called anti-American sentiments, which were, of course, uh, any sentiments that were seen as undermining the war effort. And this this started before the war began, that is to say before the United States got involved in 1917. You had these so-called Americanism committees that were being used by the embryonic uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation to find out who the people were who were not on board with buying war bonds, uh, the people who were not uh, supporting the policy toward Germany, uh, people who seemed to be suspiciously sympathetic toward the Germans, and so forth. This before war was declared on the Germans. And after the war began, things got that much worse. You actually had people being being lynched off of uh, railroad trestles in some communities by these government-abetted mobs
5: Whoa. that were
4: under the direction of the so-called Justice Department. Then after that, of course, you had the big Red Scare. Where a handful of, of genuinely radical people were used to to tarnish the reputation of just about anybody who was an immigrant, you had wholesale deportations of people, uh, most of whom were guilty of nothing more than <clears throat> than having come here at, at a bad time in, in American history. Mm-hmm. And you go to the next decade.
2: <coughs> you know, you think about the poor celebrities like Red Skelton. You know, they had to follow him, or even the Lennon sisters.
4: Oh you know, wouldn't that be awful <laughs> if they had been if they had been uh, <coughs> uh, celebrities in the 1920s? They probably would have had to change their names. <coughs> Lennon McCartney, that kind of that kind of thing. The Marx Brothers. But uh, if you if you go to the 1930s, you have the Bonus Army incident, where the uh, military is actually used to clear the mall mm-hmm. in Washington of a of an ad hoc um, settlement of of military veterans of World War One once again were demanding a bonus that had been promised to them and had not been delivered by the federal government. And you had people like uh, General Patton and General MacArthur being used to carry out (laughs) this quasi-law enforcement, quasi-military operation against the so-called Bonus Army. And it was resolved without an extraordinary amount of bloodshed. But if you read the instructions that General Patton gave Right. To uh, mm-hmm. to people with respect to how you go about uh, inflicting martial law it's really quite remarkable he he endorsed everything up to and including the use of of chemical munitions. We read against we, civilians.
2: we we read from that paper on our yeah. show. A short time ago, in 1935, he gave mm-hmm. a gave a paper. I don't know if it was the Air War College or something. Like that. It wouldn't be Air yeah. War. Yeah. But it was a similar kind of group where he basically said, uh, use bayonets on the insurgents in our country until you mm-hmm. find out who the innocent parties are. Yeah. Then you can use the guns.
3: If you must kill, yeah. do a good job. Yeah. yeah and uh, <laughs> and
2: be sure and leave some, leave some dead bodies of them in, in, in front of them as a lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure and round up. I think some other <clears> quotes he had was, Go down, shut down all media so there's no yep. communication yep. That, that goes on. Um, wait into the middle of the night to get the ringleaders if you think that, that they're involved. Uh, and, and I'm shocked at people. Of course, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, people are, are offended that he actually, uh, smacked a soldier and slapped him. And how many of them know that he, that he put a bayonet to a number of them? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there were several that lost their lives, and as I understand that, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Mr. Gregg, is that mm-hmm. uh, when MacArthur was brought in and he directed Patton against our own veterans, mm-hmm. our veterans who were there just merely to get their benefits that they had what been was, promised by our what government. Was, what
3: was promised to them. After yeah. they
2: had been put to ban that, a few people did lose their lives, from what I understand. Yep. Yep. And after That's they true. had chased them across the river and they were in full retreat, President Hoover told MacArthur to stop, and MacArthur decided on his own, that these guys may have been closet reds, and he continued to pursue them and attack them even after the president told him to stop.
4: Yeah, MacArthur was early in his career in the habit of insubordination that way, and it eventually cost him his military career in the 1950s. I wish it would have cost him his career in the 1930s when he had been guilty of insubordination in a way that involved the summary murder of American citizens who were simply demanding a benefit that had been promised to them as part of their participation, almost always as draftees, by the way, in a war that we shouldn't have been involved in. I mean, it's a multi-layered injustice if you take a look at it. And MacArthur's uh, already uh, obvious cesarean tendencies there were, I think, a really good illustration of exactly what our founding fathers sought to avoid. They wanted to prevent a circumstance where we would have military officials making policy of that sort and imposing it by... The force of arms on the American citizenry. I mean, they had to they, they'd li- <laughs> live with that during the colonial period. They'd seen how uh, Banastra Tarleton and some of the other notorious uh, British generals had treated yeah. Americans had fallen into their hands. And they certainly didn't want to see that sort of thing happen. Well, unfortunately, uh, MacArthur, somebody for whom I'd had a great deal of respect, uh, was somebody who lived down to the lowest expectations of the founding fathers. Same was true of Patton. He, uh, I'd actually had uh, not... <laughs> An overwhelming amount of respect, but but a certain grudging respect for Patton, uh, if only because unlike a lot of the generals in World War two he seemed to want to minimize the amount of damage done to civilian populations in Italy and elsewhere uh, when he went to, when, when he commanded the campaign in Italy, he was somebody who did what he could to minimize the amount of co- so called collateral damage, which mm-hmm. is a sanitized term for for uh, bloodshed and, and horror visit upon civilians and commanding the third army uh, he conducted that mad dash across Europe. He'd memorized the road network of Europe going back to the days of William the Conqueror, and so the Germans couldn't cut him off no matter how many roads they blocked and destroyed. And he seemed to understand the virtue of of striking hard and fast because you minimize the amount of of damage that's done. You conquer the enemy by depriving him of the ability to wage war. And after the war, when Eisenhower was killing hundreds of thousands of disarmed and completely helpless German POWs. Uh, Patton uh, was actually uh, catching wind of some of the policies that were brewing at the time and he opened out against that. All oh, that he had shown that that much solicitude for American Mm-hmm. civilians and right. veterans mm-hmm. of the 1930s. Well, the Ger- I can understand that.
2: Well, the Germans had his respect. I mean, he respected yeah. them very highly. But but can you, I know this is an aside, but can you clarify what you just said about uh, Eisenhower wiping out a, a number okay. of POWs? There's, what was the incident? That-
4: there is a book uh, called Other Losses, which was published about 20 years ago in Europe that caused a, a huge sensation because it documented that Uh, But for about three years after World War II, uh, Eisenhower presided over a system of POW camps that were run basically like death camps, where you had these demobilized, starving, and completely helpless German POWs who were systematically being allowed to die through malnutrition and disease. And there's a new book out about the assassination of Patton, the the title of which escapes my mind right now. But it posits the theory that uh, Patton was assassinated, rather than uh, killed but inadvertently, as we're all, all told. Mm-hmm.
5: That he was right.
4: so the driver, the limousine driver, swerved to avoid a push car, and that Patton uh, hit his head on the dome light, of the interior of the limousine, and, and broke his neck, and then wasted away in the hospital. Well, this new biography, this new uh, expose, rather, which was just published in Europe a couple of months ago, claims that uh, Patton uh, was actually at odds with Eisenhower and the rest of the Allied leadership over the question of how to deal with the German POWs. Uh, It was his opinion, Patton's opinion, that they should be treated with the customary uh, respect and uh, humanity that had been displayed toward POWs historically in America's history. And that Patton's actually was on record talking about how uh, while you're engaged in a battle, kill as many of the enemies as you can, but once they have surrendered... Treat them the same way that you would expect to be treated if you ended mm-hmm. up in the enemy's hands.
2: Yeah, these aren't war criminals you're talking about. You're just no, talking these about fighting these are these are
4: uh, these are conscripts. These are people who were oh. uh, who were drafted by by the the German military and who served their their country as they understood it, and not really having much of a choice in the matter, and who at the end of the war uh, were demobilized. They were no longer. In a position to fight, uh, who were allowed to to die in, in horrible conditions, the sort the likes of which uh, were really quite shocking. Uh, uh, the name of the author is uh, Black B L A Q U E, and the name of the book is Other Losses. It's sort of difficult to find, but if you go to a decent university library, you should be able to find it. And if you read it, it really is heartrending.
2: Well, now, uh, I'll see if Sean Hannity carries that. Maybe he <laughs> he has that, or some of our religious bookstores. Yeah. Uh, it almost makes it makes it sad to look at the the flag in your church when you think about this because I thought just bad guys uh, did this kind of thing.
4: Yeah, well, we are all bad guys when we when, when we allow ding, ourselves ding, to ding. be. We're all yeah. we're all fallen. Uh, we're all subject to the to the reality of original sin, and that's something that comes to the forefront when it's coupled with government power, particularly in wartime, but any time you've got. People given largely unaccountable power, it will extract from their innermost being all those things that, uh, through the grace of God, we could be eventually made free of. But, but the like people say, who it, permitted
2: them that power are also culpable. Yes. It, and, and the same thing is true in a local church. If a local church deifies their pastor and sets them up on a pedestal and plays to their weaknesses – of, of pride and ego, mm-hmm. and then act shock when when someone falls after they do that. I think there's a lot of blame that goes around, yeah, whether it's in a local fellowship or whether it's even in, in a nation state. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of blame to go around. That's true for other nations that that set up their glorified hero, and it's true for the United States. Can, can I follow up on, on, on this incident you talked about in the 1930s with the Bonus Army? Sure. Uh, there was a backlash uh, after that, after um, – the the uh, assault on our veterans uh there were other things going on uh growth of fascism in in Europe and it looked like it was very uh, po- very popular and very successful and back in the back in the 30s shortly after the bonus army incident there were a group of uh some of our beloved uh, industrial banking and political leaders who decided to uh, conduct their own fascist coup, coup yeah. on our own country Um, And this attack of our own federal uh, troops on our our veterans actually provided them fodder to possibly pull it off. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wondering is uh, why would this earlier act against our citizenry create an environment that's ripe for such a brazen, uh, seditious governmental overthrow – uh, attempt and response, regardless of their motives. Do, do you know where I'm getting from with that? In other words, the, the attack, the, the overwhelming attack against citizens mm-hmm. created an opportunity to justify a seditious overthrow of our of our country. And it co-opted by people who had their own motives but would actually yeah. use this to, to, to boomerang against the American public.
4: Well, that's actually a fairly common trick where you have people who are acting as both the arsonists and the fire department. That's nothing new in history, and that's certainly mm. – Something that we can see as a leitmotif in some of the more unfortunate mm-hmm. corners of the history of our own country. Well, these people I, still
2: seem separated. I mean, you know, there were still different camps vying for power. Yeah. But the excess of one created an opportunity for the other one.
4: Yeah, but, but they were vying for power, and they were vying for power that would have been organized in exactly the same way. Because at the same time, right. you had right, these, in, these industrialists, and you can you can see where some of the <laughs> some of the more notorious families of recent vintage, such as the Bush dynasty were implicated in that embryonic and abortive push. That's right. Uh, But you see that uh, they would have organized, rather they would have maintained the machinery of power that had been created first during the Woodrow Wilson administration uh, under the uh, aegis of Bernard Baruch, who was the head of the War Industries Board at the time. And then it was uh, basically recast as the mechanism for fighting the moral equivalent of war in this great emergency that was the Great Depression. They basically reinstalled the same corporatist, uh, centrally administered system that existed under under Woodrow Wilson and Bernard Baruch, they reinstalled that under FDR, and they called it uh, the National Recovery Administration, and there were a whole host of other alphabet soup agencies that were created. But they all followed the same general template as the war socialism that was in, instituted in World War One. That wouldn't have changed if the plotters had seized power. We basically would have had just a different a constellation of personalities running the same instruments of power. And traditionally, I think, at the upper echelons of the power elite, you have not so much uh, a collision of values and visions, but you have competition uh, among people who are fundamentally interchangeable. I mean, that's something Carol Quigley pointed out in Tragedy and Hope, is that these factions are pretty much identical in terms of what they offer and what they pursue, and they have a type of competition, really, that is not nearly as bloodthirsty as in some previous uh, power struggles throughout history because there there are there are correspondences between and among these factions you'll have republicans serving in democratic uh, cabinets and so forth as they pursue the same kind of uh, the same kind of policies from administration to administration and i think that if the coup plotters had come to power in the late 1930s and somehow managed to to uh, dislodge FDR, uh, that FDR wouldn't have been uh, uh, wheeled up in front of a, a wall and put put to death by a firing squad. I think uh, he would have been given a very comfortable sinecure somewhere, and they probably would have kept the coup otters, the, success, the, the successful coupotters, probably would have kept many of the, the top echelon people mm-hmm. in power. It's just you would have had, you know. De- Administration
2: would be like a hostile takeover. But but, but, but what I sense from what you said at the beginning is that a way to curtail that kind of activity is not by having a strong central uh, force, uh, police force, but actually the decentralized uh, model that you showed in our early days is probably the most effective way to stop that when it is so completely unorganized and decentralized that it's not really practical. To try to, to to assemble those kind of people because it's been so disseminated the power.
4: Yeah, not only not only is it impractical, it's not particularly an appetizing prospect to people who are attracted to power. If the only thing you win when you win the presidency is the responsibility to guarantee the rights of people with whom you disagree about everything, then why would you covet that if you're somebody who's looking to in, in looking to exercise power? If you lust for power and the only authority you're given is basically to protect the rights of everybody equally, then that's not an office that would appeal to you. Mm -hmm. But we've created in the presidency this monstrosity of centralized power that naturally appeals to people of a megalomaniacal cast of mind. And the thing that uh, the police power, the role that the police power plays in all this is that now this is one of those instruments which is basically controlled by the executive branch of the federal government, whereas before, uh, even perhaps as late as the 1960s, it was understood that every community had a decentralized and locally accountable police force. That the the president of the United States really didn't have the ability to to muster this huge uh, internal uh, this huge. Uh, apparatus of internal repression. He really didn't have that luxury until fairly recently. Uh, there were episodes that were instances in their history during the war between the states. For instance, um, Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, secretary of war once boasted that he could ring a bell and have anybody in the country arrested, and he said that not even the Queen of England had that type of power. Mm-hmm. But that was that was wow. an anomaly, an anomaly for that period. And. Between uh, the end of Reconstruction, so-called, in 1868 and the beginning of World War I, there was actually a great deal of relative uh, civility in our domestic affairs. Of course, if you don't talk about what was going on with the Indians at the time, if you just talk about what happened uh, within uh, the the mainstream of American life, uh, the government was really kept on a very short leash. And it didn't start to develop these metastasizing police powers until World War One, and that goes back to the point you made earlier about the temptations and pitfalls of war, and how they always enhance uh, wars, always enhance the powers of government, the arbitrary powers mm-hmm. of government,
2: and also sticking mm-hmm. your nose in uh, places where it doesn't belong. Yeah. When, when Wilson wants to make us an internationalist, and suddenly we we take on the international woes and worries. When you become internationalist, you, you mentioned that the latter 1800s being a time that was relatively tranquil, there was tremendous progress that was made in science and standard of living. There was still much that had to be done as far as organized labor and things, but there were, there were, there were things that were proving the, the lots of people, even in the industrial age. There were pluses and minuses there. But it was a time of great increase in education, of discovery, of, in, of invention. Uh, and we did interact with people around the world. But it was through peaceful endeavors, it was through commerce, it was through the arts, it was through exchange of ideas and It wasn't until Wilson came along it appears to me you're much more the historian than I when we decided to get our nose in the politics of yep. other countries in a big way and and that's became the beginning of the end uh as far as the the tranquil life that we had. We're back at the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future and Tom Bionic, yes. Yes. No middle name. No. As um, it goes. What can I say? William Gregg made some other incredible points, like mm-hmm. he always does. Um, I thought it very interesting uh, the discussion about the Indians and how they were set up as uh, mm-hmm. some major boogeyman enemies to help create a yeah. What did police it, it, it was
3: either you or you or brother Gregg called him indio fascists, yes, yeah, that was my
2: term, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was because it was epipope. very clear the way he was describing that how we have branded another foreign ethnic group mm-hmm. uh a similar kind of name, so we yeah. can sort of caricaturize indeed. them indeed,
3: and, I wonder if the Americanism committees that he talked about in World War one uh could be called germano fascists. Or, you know, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. I, that's the first uh, I heard of it. I don't yeah. know anything about it.
2: Yeah. Um I, I, I found uh, the perspective that history will give give you will will make things very very clear. Uh, this whole thing about uh, Eisenhower killing German POWs is I'm something I got to look into in more. Book, yeah. yeah. Well. Well. Uh, speaking of uh, people who have a reign of terror, let's bring in uh, Merv. <laughs> Merv, would you tell our listeners how they can find out more about Future
6: Quake? Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
2: Okay, it's that time. All right, man, let's hit it. Come back tomorrow for another great segment with William Grigg. And until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day.
0: I'm the law on these here parts. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.
2: Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future.
3: And I am Tom, no middle name, Bionic.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well... We uh, it's, had another great episode yesterday, and yeah. we're getting ready for a next one with William Grigg. It's, uh, it's I wish we had, like, 18 hours a day we could be on.
3: Wow. He might not appreciate that. Like, you know, like, like Reverend Gene Scott dinner.
2: used to have. You know, he was on, like, six uh-huh.
3: hours a day. Dude. Yeah, and then he played, after he got to a certain point, he played reruns. Yeah.
0: Get on head. the phones. Get on
2: the phones. Give me your money. hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um... What you think? Any other comments about yesterday before we get into our interview? We don't have much time, Man. like Jack Bauer says. Yeah,
3: I'd like to see, I'd like to get out uh, other losses that, you know, that's one thing we talked about real briefly. Mm-hmm. Other losses, that book about Eisenhower and the, read, the concentration camps.
2: Read these history books. Read yeah. the history books you don't find out. You'll mm-hmm. completely change your look at, at ourselves and our country. And uh, our teacher today is William Grigg, and he's going to teach us more about uh, the growing military state in America. So with no further ado, here's William Grigg, and we'll be right back to pick it up here at Quake. Can you briefly comment on um, – you mentioned the 1960s, how things started to change. Yeah. Did the role of civilian law enforcement and how it was used by federal authorities change further in the 1960s, and why did you think think that it did so?
4: Well, that was an outgrowth really of the Great Society. We had this uh, arsonist in the firefighter dynamic playing out with the, the, the Johnson administration using – these huge conduits of subsidies such as these the old OEO, the Office for Economic Organi- see, Office of Economic uh, Organization, I believe it was called OEO.
2: Are they, are they restarting that organization?
4: I'm sure they are, but I'm trying to track down what the new acronym would be. (laughs) But with all those
2: those O's in it, I would think would be very popular.
4: (laughs) The Office of of Economic Opportunity, that was the the the, – But they they were literally pouring these gushers of funding into these radical groups that were helping to mobilize and and, uh, make more militants, some of the street radical groups at the time. And at the same time, you have the LEAA, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, that was being used to federalize law enforcement. It was in 1968 that she had the first SWAT team formed in Los Angeles in the LAPD, and this was done with the help of the federal government, although at the time, uh, uh, Darrell Gates, who would to become the chief of, of the uh, LAPD, uh, was the founder of the SWAT program, and he understood that it was supposed to be something that would be used in e- genuinely exceptional circumstances, and that... Uh, they would be considered a failure if these people actually got involved in an armed confrontation, that they were there primarily to protect civilian life and to rescue hostages who might find themselves caught in a crossfire. But they were, not, they were to be used only in mm. genuine emergencies. What, first, what
2: about if people were raising their families on compounds?
4: Oh, there you go. I mean, obviously, it's a bad thing because you're calling the home a compound. Uh, which is what you only refer to a home as a compound if it's going to come under assault from the federal government. You know, it could be a wiki could be a, wiki up or a tar paper shack, an igloo. Uh-huh. It could be a yurt, you know, but it's a compound all of a sudden if so, it's under assault by the police.
2: So if they raid your place, can we call yours the Grig Compound?
4: Oh, I'm surprised it's not been referred to as a compound yet. <laughs> but but they, this, what happened with the SWAT, uh program in Los Angeles, is the first time they used it was – In a really nasty confrontation with the Black Panthers, Mm -hmm. and they had to get special permission from the White House to use a single uh, grenade launcher that they got from a Marine base, and it turned out they didn't have to use it. The Black Panthers eventually threw down their weapons and said, okay, we give up, and everybody in the LAPD, according to Darrell Gates' account of this, breathed a huge sigh of relief because they did not want to cross that line. They didn't want to cross the line into using military ordnance for domestic law enforcement. And nowadays, you know, 40 years on, uh, we so have that's a exactly where the
3: opposite. It's done <laughs> every every yeah.
4: police department in this country above uh, in, in a town larger than say 25 or 30,000 has a SWAT team or a tactical team that is trained by the by the uh, yeah, Navy SEALs or by the Green Berets or by Delta Force. Um, they're, they're kitted out in, in full-fledged paramilitary drag, and they're used for. The most mundane of chores. They're used to police parade routes. They're used to deliver common warrants. Uh, they're they're used with this uh, shameless promiscuity that suggests that the uh,
2: they're used to incite terror.
4: Yeah, In, they, they are, they're they're used to terror. terror. People,
2: yeah, we all be, we all become little uh, uh, alien Gonzalez's.
4: Exactly,
2: and uh, that 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 look of uh, comfort on his face in that famous picture oh, when the yeah. when the man with the helmet thank and the big gun the, pointed at him.
3: Thank goodness the guy is here yeah. with the machine gun.
2: Yeah, that's that's the look that we all have in our face when we're confronted with that. And uh, that's when terror comes knocking to our own door. You know, we're getting into the uh, the modern era here in our discussion. And, and, and to me, a, another seminal event in recent history uh, happened during Hurricane Katrina, where, mm-hmm. where federal troops were called in to a local region, uh, and they forcibly detained civilians. Uh, they denied them their Second Amendment rights. They took away their guns which they would have otherwise had to defend themselves. I'm sure mm-hmm. there were a few bad apples out there doing things. But sure. rather than selectively disarming those who were posing a threat, they would actually go to people's homes specifically for the purpose of uh, disarming them. Do you think this was a dry run for a future, more draconian action that could be larger in scale and possibly to test the public response to such actions?
4: I don't doubt that that, of course, was one of the effects of that operation, but – I don't think that it was planned as a dry run. I just think that this, display, this is a display of the opportunistic tendency of, of law enforcement today to behave that way whenever it gets an opportunity to do so. I think that's standard operating procedure. I think that the people who operate law enforcement today consider what had been the traditional mode of law enforcement, that is to say civilian operations, Peace officers who are conspicuous presence, who are supposed to be reassuring, uh, by and large refraining from regimenting or otherwise harassing people. That's the con- That conventional mode of operation for American law enforcement is seen as anomalous, I believe, by the people who are running law enforcement today. I believe that they consider the type of situation that, that uh, was unveiled in, in post-Hurricane Katrina to be the optimal environment for law enforcement. Because in those circumstances, you don't have to worry about officer safety. And officer safety right now is the paramount concern for everybody who runs a a law enforcement operation. Uh, Or civil
2: civil rights lawyers. You didn't have to worry about civil rights lawyers watching uh, and seeing the actions that were taken by the state.
4: Yeah, you didn't have to worry about that. You didn't have to worry about meddlesome media actually Uh, doing its job as watchdogs of the government, in this case, uh, government law enforcement operations. And now, of course, it's become standard operating procedure for uh, police involved in any kind of a controversial exercise of force, such as that horrendous shooting uh, on the BART platform in Oakland a Mm -hmm. few months ago. Standard operating procedure now is to confiscate the cell phones of all the witnesses present so that there are no independent records of what happened. There are a couple of people who actually fled into the train, uh, one step ahead of police officers who were pounding on the train trying to get them to surrender their cell phones so that the public couldn't see the unedited footage of what had happened there. And in a lot of jurisdictions now, if somebody actually makes a record of police officers uh, in the course of carrying out an arrest or or, or doing something that looks like an abusive force, uh, people will be arrested and charged with some kind of spurious offense, usually on the nature of, of resisting arrest. Yes, you can be resisted, uh, arrested for resisting arrest, which sounds sort of tautological, <laughs> or uh, disorderly conduct, or any one of a number of, of utterly spurious charges, simply so that the police will be able to confiscate the film and and destroy the footage.
2: Now that and, that, that tells me they're no longer looking out for the public interest; exactly. they're looking out for the police force interest. Yeah, they're looking when that out is their for
4: activity. They're looking out for the interests of the, if you will, official tribe they belong to. And the the tribal mentality of law enforcement is becoming very, very troublesome. Here's a really interesting exercise. Go into the blogosphere. Go to the the Google blog section and uh, call up some law enforcement blogs. There are many, many blogs that are run by active-duty police officers. And go in and take a sample of their perspectives on the rest of us.
5: Yeah. Uh, the way that
4: they their opinions of the public at large, particularly when the public complains about some obvious act of misconduct on the part of police officers. Well, it it's really an interesting and unsettling exercise.
3: Well, I think there's a really dramatic a dramatic uh, thing you can point to in that in the mindset of police officers, and that's at the Denver uh, DNC. There was a shirt that was passed out post rally among the police that was you know sold for profit that said. Uh, we wake up early to beat the crowds.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right. So this picture of this this hypertrophied knuckle-dragger with a, <laughs> with a club in his hand uh, yeah. salivating at the prospect of being able to beat people down. Uh, there was another photograph that he captured that mindset that I put on my blog just recently of a riot policeman who had decorated his helmet with, with a, a logo that said, if you can read this, you're about to get your... How, does it put it? How do they put it? How do put it? If you can read this, you're about to get your head beat in.
2: Right. I saw that on your on your on your website there. Uh, there there's one point I'd like to make just in, in closing because I want to I want to get into the psyche of the of. At least some portion of the law enforcement community. But in, in, in closing on the Katrina event, you know, we, we saw some what people would call corners cut on civil rights. And, <laughs> and and people would say, particularly Christians, would say, well, you know, that was a special circumstance. Those were a special crisis circumstance. You have to look the other way for things like this. But I think what people forget is that if you only have civil rights when it's convenient to have civil rights. Then you don't have them. Then there is yeah. no such thing as having civil rights. Anybody yeah, will give you civil rights. When when it doesn't cause any kind of difficulty to the system. But that's the real test of whether you really ever have them at all is when they're under difficult circumstances.
4: Exactly, and the circumstances that prevailed in post-Katrina New Orleans were by no means novel if you consult with people who've lived in some unfortunate parts of Chicago, for instance, or some of the cities in the Bay Area in California. Where it has been standard operating procedure now for many, many years, if not for many decades, for police to behave as if they were overt, uh, overtly subscribing to the propaganda of their armies of occupation. Uh, I have really had a change of mind and a change of heart on that issue because, as recently as, say, 10 or 15 years ago, I believe that a lot of the accounts of police brutality were being confected or being dressed up dramatically by uh, people who were racial ambulance chasers of the Jesse Jackson variety. Uh, But once you control for people of that sort, and they are unfortunately fairly common, if you control for people of that sort and actually take a look at the objective record, there is, of course, a great deal of legitimate source of grievance there on the part of many people living in communities of that sort who are away from the scrutiny of the mainstream and hence largely forgotten about. And now it's sort of… I uh, into the mainstream, uh, and it's becoming more and more obvious, you know, thanks to YouTube and some of the other file-sharing technologies that are available right now. It, it's, it's something that is growing at a parabolic rate, and as our economy continues to, to plumb new depths of depression, we can expect to see a lot more of this type of stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um you know, regarding the law, I guess just in conclusion to the civil rights and the law, I just think how far we've come. If you go back and think about the the days of the Persian king, when, when he would recite something, and it became law when he said it, it yeah. could not be rescinded No, because they had such a high regard for the law and the authority of the law. So so even when, when the king makes a terrible mistake and has to end up putting his uh, tr- trusted associate Daniel in the lion's den, the, the law stood supreme. Daniel still had to go into the lion 's den because the law was kept in awe, uh, and in fact, even the children of Israel kept a a wonderful position in the state of the law in fact, maybe in some ways they they got too legalistic with the law but there was yeah. there was a profound there was a profound respect for the law, even when it impacted your own family members when they were subject to punishment. Uh, the law had to be respected, and now we have a blatant disregard of it. But, but, but on to the this concept of the psyche, how the psyche is changing within the police department. I, I, I'd like to suggest to you, um, Mr. Gregg, to sometime check out again the movie The Blob, the original one with mm-hmm. Steve McQueen. Yeah. I just happened to have that on in the background on the TV the other day. i never seen the original. There's two policemen in there, and they are really microcosms or, or, or mm-hmm. the prototypes of, of the two camps that we have in law enforcement today. You had one who was very sympathetic to the young people who were the stars of the movie, always trying to give them a chance, knew them personally. It mixed with them personally, found out what they did uh, when they were doing something wrong. He would very gently tell them they' better knock it off you know yeah he but he knew their families, he was always trying to get to the bottom of what was going on and then you had you had this other policeman who 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 knew that all of these young people were bad apples <laughs> and, and anything happened you know here here you 've got this monster you know killing people and tearing up, and they were blaming the young people for everything that went on because he knew they were bad seed and it get got to the point. Whether they would believe and trust the word of this teenager, Steve McQueen, and you had these two policemen fall in two camps, Mm. one with the presumption that this common citizen could be trusted with his word, and the other one whose default position was that he could not be trusted. Wow. And I find that that really is where we've fallen in the state of our of, of our own uh, law enforcement right now. You know, I mentioned Andy Griffith earlier. You know, you had an environment where you had law enforcement officials who lived amongst the people, knew them personally, knew their little traits and picadillos, mm-hmm. And like you said, tried to do the least disruptive way of maintaining the peace uh, and, yeah. and resolving it because they got engaged in the people. And what was for the best wishes of the entire community? Long long term, can you give us some more? And I know you've written a lot about this, but give us a very succinct understanding of what has changed in the mindset of at least a disturbing portion of our law enforcement community.
4: I think that the best way of illustrating that is by referring to the case of Ramon Perez in Austin, Texas. He's somebody who had been a successful businessman in his twenties and thirties, and went on to become a lay minister for an evangelical church in Austin, Texas wonderful man. He was the father of a homeschooling family of, I believe, four children. When he was 39 or 40, he decided that he wanted to become a police officer because he wanted to serve the public. He lived in a particular neighborhood there that had some problems with crime. And so he filled out an application. He was accepted as a very late-blooming cadet at the police academy, And he was immediately embraced by his fellow cadets as somebody who was an exemplary leader, somebody who led by example, not a man of many words, but he simply did what was necessary, studied and mastered all of his courses, uh, was in the very top uh, echelon in all the physical fitness tests, which is an accomplishment. when You're competing with a bunch of teenagers and young 20-year-olds, and you're almost 40. But he was the highest-ranked cadet come out of the academy, and he won an award for leadership. And with that behind him, he was brought on as a probationary officer at the Austin PD. And within a couple of months, he was washed out, not because of anything he'd done wrong, but because he took the Constitution seriously, because as a Christian, he understood that as a minister of the law, he had a responsibility to protect the rights of everybody, including people who were accused of crimes. Specifically, he found himself at that least appetizing of all police calls a domestic violence call. Involving an elderly couple, uh, we're talking about people who are in the later part of their seventh or early part of their eighth decades in the late sixties, early seventies. Mm. Uh, one of them, the man in question, apparently had roughed up his wife, which is a horrible thing to do. she called the police. The police don't like answering those calls. Who would? And uh, he showed up uh, Ram- Ramon Perez is the first responder, and he saw the the elderly man out on the sidewalk uh, pacing back and forth in a very agitated state. Just then, uh, Ramon Perez's uh, superior showed up and uh, told him that it was necessary to tase the elderly man because he wasn't cooperating uh, with the police. He wasn't subjecting himself to arrest. He was resisting, so he said you need to tase him. And Ramon Perez, uh, Officer Perez, said, well, no, that won't be necessary. I don't think that it's necessary to tase this this elderly man uh, because he's not putting up violent resistance. He's simply uh, not cooperating. I think we can take him in using soft hand tactics. And so uh, Officer Perez approached the man and spoke with him briefly and said, look, we need to get this cleared up. Why don't we come down? We're going to have to arrest you. It's just a question of how we do it. Uh, Why don't you come down to the station? We'll fill out a report. We'll see if we can get this taken care of because chances are it's a misunderstanding we can clear it up. And so intervening that way, he was able to take the man into custody, and they were able to clear up the domestic violence charge. However, uh, within a week, a black mark was entered on Officer Perez's record. Why? Why? He had, he had disregarded the order of superior to use his taser. Now, a taser, of course, is an implement of electroshock torture. It uses 50,000 watts in order to incapacitate the person on the receiving end of the shock. And when you're administering a shock of that magnitude to a man in frail health in his late 60s, early 70s, it could be fatal. Furthermore, the department's official policy, as spelled out clearly in their manuals, did not authorize the use of taser Uh, as the taser, as a way of bringing into custody somebody who was not putting up violent resistance. And so Officer Perez was in the right. He was standing with the side of the Angels as far as the Austin PD's policies were concerned, certainly where the Constitution was concerned, but because it violated the order, it disregarded the order of a superior officer, He was looked upon as problematic, so he was given a psychiatric evaluation, and it was determined in the course of the psychiatric evaluation that uh, Officer Perez had rigid beliefs about right and wrong that made him incompatible with police service, and so he was very quickly flushed out of the Austin PD for not carrying out an unlawful order, for refusing to carry out an unconstitutional order, and for having rigid concepts of right and wrong that, that that uh, made it impossible for him to carry out these illegal orders. He was washed out of the Austin PD. That is a department that is chock full of abusive officers who routinely commit offenses against uh, the rights and dignity of, of criminal suspects as well as people who are innocent bystanders. The Austin PD has been under under all kinds of, uh, of uh, federal scrutiny by the Justice Department because of its well-earned reputation for brutality. Those people make the grade. Uh, Ramon Perez, a conscientious constitutionalist and Christian father, didn't make the grade. Somebody who was trying to live up to the best traditions of the the peace officer was flushed out of that position within a couple of months of being brought on board. Now, that's a really good illustration of the way that the mindset has changed mm-hmm. now. It's entirely positivist. What really matters in the minds of most of the people who are in law enforcement today uh, below, I'd say, the age of maybe 35 or so is simply maintaining their position, and in order to do that, you simply have to carry out the orders of your superiors irrespective of the specific legality or constitutionality of the given order.
2: Now, now the silver lining for him may be that although he, he lost his vocation and the challenges that come with taking care of his family, maybe he left before he's forced to actually have to pull a gun on somebody in yeah. order to have to shoot him. Uh, you know, and be a point where there's a gun in his back to do it. But but the sad thing in a community like that is is what kind of civic people could ever stand up and protest something like that in the community when they know they have that kind of uh, stormtrooper mentality. The police force, their days exactly. would be very short if anyone tried to come up and stand against them. Because as you have well documented in your blog, we've had governors who've been set up with packages that were uh, put on their their doorstep that they had absolutely nothing to do with. And their houses broken into, their dogs killed, their families terrorized, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and it's the kind of thing we used to read about in communist Russia happening, and we would just shake our heads and think how how horrible those poor souls must be have to live under such a totalitarian state. Uh, and now it's just on a on regular police ink blotter uh, yeah. in, in regular news. There, there's an area that you cover. Uh, very uniquely in your blog, and I, and I, I just got to recommend to everybody to please check out your blog. It's at Uh but, but it's regarding the war on drugs. Uh, can you talk about how the contradictory and inconsistent war on drugs has created an environment that behooves the local and national law enforcement to make sure the underground market is sustained in drugs?
4: All the... D- Uh, Any kind of prohibition manages to accomplish in an economic sense. All that prohibition does is create a huge economic incentive for bootleggers. Uh, There's a a wonderful economic model called the the Bootlegger Baptist Alliance, and it talks about the fact that uh, dry counties, historically, there are some dry counties today, but during prohibition, of course, every county was expected to be dry. Uh, Dry counties uh, were enacted in many parts of the South, Uh, through a coalition of people representing the uh, temperance movement on the one hand and then interest representing the bootleggers on the other. Because when you create a prohibition, you create a a price premium for those who can actually provide the substance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether you're talking about alcohol, whether you're talking about marijuana or cocaine or any other type of controlled substance, there's always going to be a risk premium involved for those who provide it illegally. And there's also sort of a monopoly that, that's created, a cartel. It's one of the reasons they call them drug cartels. They effectively have a monopoly, and government is enforcing that monopoly, as well as providing a perverse type of price support for the product.
5: All
3: right,
2: we're back here at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
3: And Tom, I'm the law and this your part. Bionic.
2: At least for the week. Yep. Then there'll be a new I'm sheriff. sheriff. There'll be a I'm new the new sheriff. i sheriff in town. Do you think you're boss hog or something? <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, he talked about the 1960s. Indeed. And how things changed about the rise of militarized SWAT teams. And that how Daryl Gates and people were afraid to use it. They didn't mm-hmm. want to do it. Now they do it, I think, for recreational purposes.
3: Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. Tazing
2: has become entertainment. There
3: we go. Time to get, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: The more helpless, the Gym more walkers fun
3: call the SWAT team.
2: Well, I tell you, the the whole thing with Ramon Perez and that whole story about yeah. his unwillingness to tase an elderly man. It was
3: very sad, really, the whole thing.
2: Read William Griggs' blog, everybody. Mm-hmm. Freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Um, it is an arresting read, excuse the pun, mm-hmm. uh, on a regular basis, and you will learn so much about well, all the perspectives I, you never think about.
3: I think one of the things that you really need to know is all the, the one thing you can really take away from this interview is that it's standard operating procedure to confiscate all cell phones during, uh, to destroy all spurious testimony of of incidents involving shooting and other crimes where, uh, cops have to intervene, on a situation.
2: So they really don't want evidence to be brought forward. No. Hmm. Well, um. um Someone who we won't destroy the evidence of is our friend Merv. Mm-hmm. Merv, would you please come tell our listeners how they can produce evidence of what they think about Future Quake?
6: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor at futurequake.com. That's D R F U T U R E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
3: Okay, it's time to say goodbye. Somebody's confiscate his cell phone.
6: Yeah. Well,
2: don't confiscate your radio because we need you back tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a great day. Bye.
0: Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.
2: Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future.
3: And Tom, I am the law bionic.
2: And soon not to be the law. Uh, and we have William Grigg, the author of Liberty and Eclipse, uh, on this week. And this is our last segment mm-hmm. uh, with him talking about evidence of a growing military state in America and the proper role of law enforcement mm-hmm. and Christian perspective. Interesting. He is a brilliant man. And I tell you, I don't know how one could not be fascinated to hear Love what to he hear has him to speak. say.
3: We should just go right to him. Read his Instead blog.
2: Prattling on. If you want me to shut up, I get the message. Ding, ding, ding. With no further ado, here's William Grigg. And then we'll be right back to wrap it up on Future FutureQuake.
4: 120 years ago, when I think most people would agree our country was more seriously committed to Christian ethics than it is today in the aggregate, it was legal to consume any substance that is now prohibited under the aegis of the the war on drugs. There were communities, and this is appropriate in a federalist context, that had banned many intoxicating substances, including the most commonly consumed drug, which is alcohol, But federally, there were no laws against the consumption of any kind of intoxicating substance. There were regulations as to how it was produced. There were excise taxes and so forth. But you could buy cocaine as a topical palliative, a topical analgesic at any chemist's shop. It was advertised in family magazines. Uh, Cocaine was an additive in a soft drink, Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola. You had widespread uh, accessibility to opiates of various kinds. The only real drug problem that existed at the time was the residual addiction of people who had become addicted to to opium uh, during the Civil War. People, for instance, uh, who had become addicted to, to morphine because of right. uh, the crude surgery, the battlefield surgery that was conducted by many of the injured soldiers and such like. It wasn't until 19, if I'm correctly, 1919, 1909, rather, that uh, you had the first law... Dealing with marijuana passed in this country, and that really began this century long experiment of the war of, called the, the War on Drugs. It was associated with the, the war uh, on alcohol consumption uh, prohibition. It was understood by the people promoting alcohol prohibition you had to change the Constitution in order to have the federal government get involved in this issue because the federal government wasn't given the constitutional authority to regulate what people could consume. So they were honest enough to change the Constitution in order to give the federal government the power Mm -hmm. to do this wildly improvident thing that proved to be such a stunning and world-historic debacle that they actually had to amend the Constitution less than a generation later to repeal prohibition. And so you have really the the residuum, the prohibitionist mindset at work now with with drug prohibition, but it's it's also a – forgive me here – it's also, as you say, quite a, a contradictory spectacle in that you have uh, these severe restrictions on, uh, and the criminalization of uh, the cultivation of hemp uh, in many parts of this country. You can't you can't cultivate hemp without uh, specific license from the Drug Enforcement Administration. They're cracking down on that. Hemp, of course, is related to marijuana, in spite of the fact that most of the hemp being cultivated for for various uses, including uh, dietary supplementation, doesn't have any of the substances that that, uh, marijuana-producing hemp would contain. Mm -hmm. But at the same time that the government back in the 1930s and early 1940s was banning the cultivation of hemp when it was starting to crack down on marijuana, they were encouraging the cultivation of hemp for use in creating ropes for the Navy for the war effort in World War War II. Then if you take a look at the 1950s during the Korean War, uh, amphetamines were widely distributed for use by fighter pilots in order to keep them right. alert during combat sorties. Yeah, I, I actually reproduced on my blog some of the advertisements that were used in military literature to uh, let pilots know that uh, the supposed benefits of taking amphetamines. Never mind, I have nothing to do with any of this stuff. I don't smoke or drink at all. I'm a complete teetotaler. My only vice really is sugar – uh, which is a which is a crop that the government subsidizes the way it subsidizes tobacco, <laughs> incidentally. You're probably better off. You're probably better off, uh, as perverse as this might sound, uh, taking uh, taking any of the forbidden substances than you are eating. You know, consuming sugar the way that most Americans consume it. I don't recommend. I don't recommend consuming any of it. But if you take a look at the history of of LSD, there was a time in the early 1950s when the CIA, which really encouraged the the uh, refinement of, of that uh, hallucinogenic substance as a truth serum, when the when the the CIA ba- basically had the the global market cornered on uh, on, L- on LSD, and it encouraged uh, Dr. Gottlieb and his and his minions and their experiments the late 50s, and early 60s, with LSD as a way of. Of altering uh, human personalities to make them malleable to post hypnotic suggestion, as well as uh, use in, in extracting information from captured spies. Now, the government not, was actively yeah. involved in promoting all of these things, while at the same time they have been involved in prohibiting the private use of them. And yeah. the upshot of it is that the war on drugs has been nothing more than an exercise in eviscerating the Bill of Rights and in militarizing law enforcement, and also in providing really nasty incentives. Through the use of civil asset forfeiture, that's that's other, the point I was getting at. Yeah. That
2: was the part you've emphasized that the light bulb came out of my head. How it's yeah. been a cash cow for law oh, yeah. enforcement. Mm-hmm.
4: If you can, if you can seize in the name of civil, civil asset forfeiture any property or any amount of money that you can, you can uh, create a drug nexus to. You've got a huge incentive that is being that is being followed, predictably enough, by police agencies all across the country. For police officers, simply to steal. Uh, there's this little town in Texas that was recently in the news. Uh, it's, it's part of. It's right along one of the major interstate corridors. If you come through that county uh, with uh, with license plates, out-of-town license plates, you're going to be stopped by the police. And if you're found to be in possession of any significant amount of money, you will be confiscated through civil forfeiture. You'll have the opportunity at the time either to surrender your money or to be uh, booked into jail and to wait a long and And uh, no doubt, very unpleasant uh, legal hearing to decide whether or not you should be prosecuted for suspicion of money laundering or drug trafficking. The same scam was run in Dallas County, Iowa, by the Sheriff's Department. They, in the course of four or five years, confiscated several million dollars worth of cash and uh, and automobiles using the same civil forfeiture provisions that were created through the War on Drugs. And the reason that came to a halt was that their sheriff was caught with several bags full of money that had been confiscated from people through civil asset forfeiture. There was a legal decision handed down, I believe in 2006, involving a traffic stop in Nebraska that uh, is just the most astonishing thing I've ever co- I've ever seen uh, come off uh, the, the pen of a federal judge, and that takes in quite a bit of territory. He mm. literally said that... If you're a motorist and you're found in the possession of a large sum of money, that fact alone is probable cause. It should be considered probable cause for suspicion that you're involved in drug trafficking. And uh, if you take a look at these legal decisions that are handed down to uphold civil forfeiture, it really is quite the the most amazingly perverse thing. It will say, uh, by way of a title for a case, something along the lines of United States of America versus $175,000 in U.S. currency, because... This is a criminal process that is called an in-rem proceeding. In-rem means directed at the thing or against the thing. What they're doing is they're finding the property guilty of being involved in drug trafficking or in narcotics, the narcotics market in some sense. They don't have to take somebody to court, a human being to court, and convict that person in a criminal court of some kind of a crime. They find the thing guilty, and they seize the thing And this is a perfect example of why the war on drugs is permitted to proceed. It is, like you said, a huge and and infinitely self-replenishing artesian well of of revenue for every police department in the country. And it's, it's a really good example of how the law has been perverted now. They're no longer in the business of protecting us from thieves. They are now behaving like thieves, these police agencies.
2: You know what's amazing, though? With all these drugs they're regulating, they are not regulating the most dangerous drug of all, and that is power.
3: I thought you were going to say caffeine. <laughs> yeah. no, it, I mean, the, the, the
2: drug of power is going unrelented and unregulated exactly. uh, at, at the sake of, of controlling mm-hmm. these other things. Um, we're getting here near to the end, and I, and I just want to briefly uh, summarize the content of, of your book and ask some advice from you on what we should do. But I want to get a quick comment uh, looking to the future. Uh, we've noticed that our, our, our military reserves and our even our National Guard – have all been sent en masse to a, to Iraq. Uh, and there they've largely been trained and coerced to break down doors and threaten or harm families and do similar actions door-to-door in communities. And have been trained in this kind of uh, urban assault environment. And now they're coming back to the U.S. Uh, looking for work, and many of them are joining local law enforcement groups en masse. Uh, obviously their psyches had to have been influenced by what they've experienced in some of the worst days in Fallujah and elsewhere. How do you think this development will change how the public is treated by our own law enforcement?
4: A lot of these people who are over there right now as reservists and guardsmen who are carrying out the occupation of Iraq came out of law enforcement, and they will go back to law enforcement, have been transformed in their mindset with respect to how they view a civilian population, whether you're talking about an Iraqi population or an American population. The mission of a military unit is to compel people to submit to a given political order. They are, they are targeting the community at large, and any any one of a, any any member of a given community, any any one of a given population, uh, who's seen as not submitting to the commu- to the to the new political order, is seen as a potential insurgent and source of trouble, and is dealt with summarily. Uh, that's not the law enforcement mindset. The law enforcement mindset is that you're you're there to protect these people. You're there to protect their persons and property in the least disruptive way possible. You're there to de-escalate situations rather than to use overwhelming force. Uh, the current uh, head of the Chicago uh, Gang Division, uh, Philip, I, mean, I, I believe his name is James Russel, is somebody who uh, spent, uh, I believe, 25 years as a uh, counter-gang expert in Chicago before going to Fallujah and leading a counterinsurgency effort in, in Fallujah, he came back from Fallujah and immediately recreated his, his Iraq-style counterinsurgency unit in Chicago for the purpose of, of maintaining order on uh, the west side of that city, the legendary or infamous west side of Chicago. And that's a really good example of the sort of thing we're going to be seeing a lot more of <clears throat> as these people are, are demobilized and brought back here domestically to run law enforcement. They're going to use the skill set that they acquired over in what has been called the Timothy McVeigh finishing school, which is, <laughs> oh, gosh. you know, in, in a, in a combat in Iraq it cultivates a certain mindset that is that is uh, riotously incompatible with civilian law enforcement. And for as long as we have these open-ended occupations going in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, that's where our future law enforcement will be trained because they there are. Incentives built into the recruiting structures of every major municipal law enforcement body to give preferential treatment to those who have military experience. If these people understood and were committed to the constitutional framework of law enforcement, they would not do this. They might restructure the incentives in exactly the opposite way because somebody with that mindset is disqualified from being a peace officer. It mm-hmm. seems to me that should be an obvious proposition.
2: It's not that being a soldier is is not a noble occupation. It can mm-hmm. be a noble occupation, yes. much like being law enforcement. But yes. we, we have to understand the different roles and responsibilities. Exactly. And that's the crux of the problem. Um, I, 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 I want to wrap up with these final two questions, but I've but I got to get just a quick minute or two comment from you about this development related to this that's happened in the last six months where we now have a uh, – A a national, excuse me, an active uh, army brigade uh, stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, who is intended express mission to address civil unrest in our country. Mm -hmm. An actual army force. uh, Supposedly, they're supposed to be added with tens of thousands more uh, in over the next two years. And in their own publications, in the Army Times. They, they they talk about how they are now armed with the latest in less-than-lethal technologies to maintain civil mm-hmm. control, and they said in the very article that they were going to use the techniques that they learned in Iraq, and they said hopefully we won't be shot at this time. Yeah. Is this kind of development a threat to our <laughs> republic, and what do you think will come of their presence eventually?
4: Well, I think what it means is that we're not living in a republic. Uh, they've crossed the Rubicon. I have a whole series. There's an ongoing series in my blog called Rubicon and the Rearview, where I go through developments of the sorts you just described, and I show how they illustrate that we're well past the hypothetical stage here of the union between military and law enforcement and how we really do have um, law enforcement culture that is thoroughly militarized and utterly incompatible with our Republican institutions. What we need to do is walk back the cat, to use the intelligence term. We really have to step back from where we are, retrace the, the steps that led us here, and to use a term we've used quite a few times in this conversation, de-escalate and demobilize a lot of what already exists here. Hmm. There was an effort, or rather there was a proposed exercise in Arcadia, Iowa, that was supposed to take place yeah. in spring where they were going to have hmm. a, a military operations and urban terrain or mount type scenario involving the search for an arms dealer. Right. So they would have these troops go door to door and canvas a neighborhood using people who would volunteer to participate in this mock up. Uh, in the company of the media, I thought that was really interesting. They were going to have embedded media along for the purposes of this, exor- mm-hmm. this exercise, this training exercise, to find out where this arms dealer had secreted himself. And this was rescheduled and, and somewhat um, somewhat reduced in scope because of public outcry. People understood the implications here. Well, why? training uh, for a mission that could only have domestic application here that would entail the disarmament of the American public. And why is it that the media is going along with this as opposed to exercising some kind of a watchdog role once again? Well, it's because we're living in the post-Republican environment of 2009. The question is not whether we're going to have martial law because we already have elements of it in place right now. It's the extent to which it's going to take root and flourish. Anytime you have a situation where The operative assumption is that a civilian has to obey the orders of a man-in-uniform martial law exists. Mm -hmm. Just uh, last week there was that episode up on the Canadian border involving this fellow Desiderio Fortunato, who is in the habit of of requiring that border guards, when he crosses from Canada to the United States, and vice versa, having border guards say please when they issue instructions. That's not an unreasonable request. These people are supposed to be public servants after all. Well, he tried that routine uh, coming into the United States, and he ended up being pepper-sprayed and then gang-tackled, handcuffed, and confined for three hours for his trouble. And in defense of this, the Homeland Security officials, at least two of them I've been able to find, said basically, uh, we issue commands and you people have to obey. Well, the last time I ran into that type of mindset was in 1983 when I was living in Guatemala, and Guatemala was under martial law. The assumption was that you see somebody wearing a military blouse or khaki fatigues and he's got a gun, he orders you obey. That's completely, utterly, unambiguously foreign to the Republican tradition of a constitutional entity called the United States of America. But it's wholeheartedly in the tradition of banana republics and other unfortunate polities that have succumbed to martial law. So once again, the question is how bad is it going to get, not whether or not it's going to happen.
2: Well, Ken, can, can, uh, now, now we're getting uh, toward the end of our show here. I really need to get you to, to summarize your book, Liberty and Eclipse. I know we've talked about a lot of the key issues. Can, yeah. can you give us just an overall framework of, of your book and what it's about?
4: Liberty and Eclipse deals with the history of the militarization of law enforcement and the centralization and federalization of that function in defiance of what the Constitution intended for us to have. And it also uses specific and tragically plentiful examples from the late Bush administration to show how this is all an outgrowth of the imperial executive. That's not something that was invented by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, but it really did reach a certain malignant fruition during their reign. And you'd have to be deliberately ignorant, I believe, in order to misunderstand the typical nature of a couple of the developments I talk about in Liberty and Eclipse, for instance – the assertion that a president of his own volition can order the open-ended detention of any individual that he considers to be an unlawful enemy combatant, whether that person is an American citizen or a foreigner. Uh, That's something which goes back before running mean 1215, the Magna Carta. That's precisely the type of thing that the Magna Carta was supposed to prevent. Uh, This is part and parcel of the effective repeal of the habeas corpus guarantee Habeas corpus is that tradition in Anglo-Saxon law which says that you cannot, if you're a ruler, simply consign somebody to indefinite incarceration without bringing them before a judge and stating the nature of the charges against him. There has to be some kind of legal mechanism that you have to satisfy in order to justify somebody's pretrial detention, in order for somebody to be incarcerated for any Significantly, at the time, he has to be convicted of an offense. That's what habeas corpus is all about. The Bush administration in Congress pretty much scuttled habeas corpus back in 2006. That's something I talk about at some length in Liberty in Eclipse, because that is a really important break with our traditions. Arlen Specter, uh, Arlen Magic Bullet Specter from <laughs> Pennsylvania, uh, when the habeas corpus vote was held in 2006, in the context of what was called the Military Commissions Act. Said that uh, by passing the MCA, the Military Commissions Act, they'd be turning the clock back 900 years in uh, terms of the guarantees of due process, and then he went and voted for the measure. That's the sort of thing I talk about as well. And then again, there are illustrations in the book of the dangers, the lethal dangers of the militarization of law enforcement. I do talk quite a bit about the war on drugs. I talk as well in that book about uh, issues that might be seen as somewhat peripheral to law enforcement and the militarization of society such as conscription. But if you understand the logic of conscription, that shouldn't be seen as something, a field of the conversation that we're having right now about uh, militarization of law enforcement. The premise of conscription is that the government has the right to take everything that somebody earns or everything that somebody has, including his physical person, in order to defend itself. Now, the rationale for government's existence is that it exists to protect the rights and property of the governed. So conscription completely inverts that order of society. How do you go about creating an order of society in which people would yield to that type of of exaction by government? Well, you obviously have to have a very strong and essentially lawless enforcement mechanism. So I see that as part and parcel of the militarization of our society. And why I refer to it as liberty and eclipse, I'm an optimist by nature, albeit a somewhat cynical one, and an eclipse is a passing phenomenon. It's something that occurs and then it passes, and normalcy is restored. I am still, notwithstanding everything that's happening, that suggests that we're living in eschatological times. I'm still somewhat hopeful that mm-hmm. we're seeing something that is reversible. But whether or not it's reversible, I intend to fight it for as long as I can. Hmm.
2: Um. Well, uh, we had a few more questions to ask, but we might go a little bit in overtime. Is that okay? Do you have a little time to spend with us, or do we need to call it well, for another w- day? I'd love
4: to, but my parents are here for dinner this evening. They just arrived about ten minutes ago. <laughs>
2: so so you, you've already your home has already been invaded by a different force <laughs> of authority. Well, I I understand that yeah. you have a higher power. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Uh, there, there are some more things I, I'd love to ask you about because yes. you have such an authoritative voice and position, and I mean that in a positive way, in a mm-hmm. non-coercive way. Well, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> I, I, I mean that in a manner of uh, clear thinking that uh, we need to hear more about. The
4: voice of reason.
2: And your, be a good way to say. And your book is available, correct? Uh, yes, It's at we're,
4: Amazon.com. Uh, people who read my blog can go to the end of any given essay, and there's a link that will take you right to Amazon to order the book.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. They definitely need to get their hands on this book. I highly recommend to everyone, if you do a, f- a favor for Old Dr. Future, please get that book. Get get a bunch of copies and give it out as gifts to your relatives. Give one to your pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, give some to your other Christian brothers and sisters in your church, your family members, Um Give it to a whole host of people. Maybe even be brave and slip it to some law enforcement officials, friends of <laughs> yours. Uh, it'd be a good idea to be, to become good friends with your law enforcement officials. Go down and meet them, develop mm-hmm. relationships. Maybe they'll think twice when they when they raise the baton over your head, and they may see you as as a human being.
4: That can't hurt. Uh,
2: I, I'd sure like to have you back again to uh, review. This is this is only going to get to be a bigger and bigger issue. I'm afraid you're right. And uh, one thing we didn't have time for is to ask your advice on what we as Christians need to do. So I'd like to get you to come back sometime and talk about Romans 13. Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell us we should just obey our earthly authorities and don't ask questions.
4: I'm sure I'm going to disappoint you if that's your
2: <laughs> <explanation>. <laughs> Brother Will, God bless you so much for your contribution to uh, our, our society and to the body of Christ. And, uh, I certainly look forward to, uh, seeing what the, what the Lord takes you in your life. And our listeners, I hope you appreciate, um, the work that, uh, this dear brother does, uh, in his blog, uh, freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Uh, we'll have the link up at futurequake.com. Uh, please come back as soon as you can and, uh, I would love that. comment on the, on the, uh, the key issues that we have in society. I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for the opportunity and for the blessing.
2: And thank you and God
4: bless. God bless.
2: We're back at the Futurequake show with Dr. Future.
0: And Tom, soon to be unelected,
3: but currently the sheriff, Bionic.
2: That's right. And uh, this is just a wrap-up of uh, the end of the interview. Uh, we talked about the war on drugs, mm-hmm. and there are all sorts of ramifications that most people don't think about. Indeed. But William Grigg does. Mm-hmm. Read his blog to find out, mm-hmm. and we implore you to get his book, Liberty and Eclipse. Mm-hmm. And tell him Dr. Future and Tom Bionic sent yeah.
3: you. Yeah, Spiro Pugno.
2: That too. Yeah. Any, uh, any last words?
3: Uh, his economic model of the Bootlegger Baptist Alliance, I thought, was very enlightening.
2: We'll have to bring that up later because yeah. we got to bring Merv in, our own Bootlegger, mm-hmm. to come tell you how you can uh, let us know what you think about Future Quake.
6: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor Future at futurequake.com.
2: Last few seconds.
0: Let's roll, baby.
6: You bootleg or baptist, you.
0: There I am.
2: Well, come back t- uh, for tomorrow's tremors tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day.
0: Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 There are new
5: dreams. Nothing can
1: change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things.
2: Welcome to the Friday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, the Sheriff Bionic. Why are you Tom, the Sheriff? Because we were just talking about... uh, Brother Will?
3: Brother Will and
2: the uh, rise of the police state. Well, you know, I shot the sheriff. But I didn't shoot the deputy. You got it. (laughs) Little did I know that was the only lawful character Mm in there. It's interesting.
3: I thought that was an interesting... uh, I was wondering exactly what that song was about. Turns out it was about... yeah.
2: You know, liber- libertarian ideals, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think Brother Will could just read from the back of a box of cereal and it would be yeah. fascinating.
3: Well, what were, those, what were some of those great words? Uh, lassitude and um, what was the other one?
2: I don't know, but you know, I, for our new listeners there, if you've never tuned into Future Quake, I'm Dr. Future, and this is Tom Bionic, and mm-hmm. uh, during our normal show uh, daily, we have various segments of guests we've had during the week, and we had William Grigg on, yeah. talking about the emerging Less, police state in our, our country, he was great. and really talking from basic principles of um, hundreds of years of mm-hmm. uh, n- uh, natural and British common law, and What has happened to the emerging role of law enforcement? You know,
3: it's it's very interesting to to hear him talk about how much power was vested in the people's hands, at least originally, according to how the framers saw things going. I had a conversation with uh, a very close family member actually, Mm -hmm. and I they were they were asking why I hadn't uh, wholeheartedly uh, committed to. Uh, the Republican Party in the last election and mm-hmm. I said, Well, I can't I just can't see their views being my views and mm-hmm. my views were different and uh one of the things we talked about was uh, uh uh whose laws trump whom and they were of the staunch opinion that federal laws uh federal laws always trump states laws and I said, Well what about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment? And there was not Yeah. They couldn't really they didn't know the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, so it was kind of right. a shocking thing where, you know, Unfortunately, they turned a
2: little defensive. and Sure. It, that's know. what people happen when they don't have information. Yeah. So when information is not on their side, mm-hmm. um, you know, since the Civil War, I think we have lost. We have a nation who've lost the understanding of division of powers. Uh, sure. I just don't think we fully grasp it. You know, speak of law enforcement. That's going to be a major story of our, our uh, review today, mm-hmm. which Friday we're back to our normal scenario, which is
3: uh, Friday's review of the news or tomorrow's review of FutureQuake.
2: <laughs> you do this on purpose. It's tomorrow's Tremors or today's review of the Futures News. Of okay, I,
3: I do do it on purpose. But I'm sorry. I,
2: I want to give a call out to some friends of ours uh-huh. uh, out there. Um like to say hey to um, uh, Johnny the Longshoreman, hey, as Johnny. always. Really appreciate it. And yeah. also, I uh, happen to meet over at the World of Prophecy Board a number of wonderful people. I'd like yeah. to say hi to everybody there. But uh, someone said that uh, they listened to our show in South Africa. And they actually download it and listen to it when they're going to work. Wow, well, that's sort of cool. Yeah, that's neat. So you know, who knows? Maybe who they knows? do listen under the polar ice caps. Yeah, I don't know, but that may be one of the more distance awards we get. For well, future you know, point.
3: if uh, if Steve Quayle's, uh take on Project High Jump is correct, mm-hmm. then uh, um, you know there's there's lots of life under there on the. That's polar exactly caps right. And Nazis half, and ETs. Yeah, half man, half ET, half Nazi. Uh-huh. sort of people there right right but and then if you all I know fit that. in that
2: category call us we'll have you on the show yeah
3: we'd love to hear from you
2: yeah uh but speaking of law enforcement that's sort of the big story uh mm-hmm. today by the by the way one other quick thing uh, yeah. our listenership is still growing magnificently really and i want to thank everybody out there i think this month um, we're going to cross another major milestone of number of downloads. Really? Uh, I think something like 10,000 10, downloads. Wow! Of, uh that's in addition to our regular radio audience yeah. that are listening, and that's all been word of mouth, no advertising. Wow. Well, I want to say, uh, I want to give a hearty
3: congratulations and a backslap to you.
2: Why? Because you put in so much hard work
3: on this show. Yeah, you'd think it'd sound a lot better, wouldn't it, for all you that know, hard work? It's funny, I was having a conversation with uh, uh, uh with somebody who listens regularly and uh, they said how many hours a week does do you guys put in i said well mike really does most of the work you know i'd like to say that i work hard but usually i just kind of show up and and tag along most of the time mm-hmm. and uh, uh i said but i don't know maybe 20 hours a week and he said really it sounds like it's like an 80 hour a week thing i wish it was just 20 just, no i'm i'm just telling you yeah just, i wish it, it was it, only oh, really? 20 okay oh
2: heavens Bummer. Sorry. yeah I wish it could be just that many in it. well, he said it like putting together a show
3: he sounded like he he said it was like it sounds like an eighty hour a week thing with you, yeah, and uh he was just he, he was feels that way,
2: <laughs> you know, just doing research just trying to find people and be a heads up figuring out the proper question you know the, mm-hmm. until you've done something like it's like everything else in life any of us mm-hmm. until you've done something, you really have no idea you know what what's involved yep. in it, but you know what I'm just thankful for the opportunity to serve well, my
3: point was is that. People really, really respect what you 're doing, and they well, obviously thanks. hear hear how uh, hear how much time and how intelligent you come off and how respectful you are to the guests, regardless of mm-hmm. whatever the opinion they have and uh, I
2: think there are people really being touched by what you 're doing you know it 's funny you said that because mm-hmm. uh, we got to I got to meet a celebrity this week, thank you for for those nice words, yeah. but uh, got to meet Brother Tom Horn of Raiders finally, News Update. Finally, huh? The two wow. titans of Christian media finally met face-to-face. Really? And, and you were there to cover it. I was there <laughs> as well. That's right. Um, I was driving back from testing one of my inventions uh-huh. out there in Kansas and yeah. uh, rattling the earth. And uh, if I shook anybody's uh, China there in Kansas, sorry about that. I was just doing some testing. But mm-hmm. anyway... Um, Driving back, uh went through Springfield, Missouri, and was in the neck of the woods with Brother Tom Horn, mm-hmm. and I uh, sat down and had an extended lunch and brainstorming session and scheming of what we're going to do to battle the gates of hell mm-hmm. and uh, you know, see if we could shake their gates back. and just had a long talk about a number of things, but uh, he mentioned that too, that he says he gets feedback about our show, is that... How we treat people with respect, mm-hmm. from other guests he's heard too. Well, I didn't even say even I treat with, him with respect. No, no, I you, said, you do. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm always on the edge of my seat, going, ah, I got it. Oh. We, we try to, we, we, <laughs> we joke a little bit, but I mean, but anyway, you know, that's the word he's heard. But mm-hmm. um, and he's got a lot of big things planned. Some of them may involve oh, us. No. So I'm pretty excited, and he's got this book coming out that, mm-hmm. that I'll have a part in. So mm-hmm. you'll be hearing all about that very, very soon. But he's got something percolating that I'm not at liberty to disclose. Mm-hmm. But it should be a blockbuster. and before the year's out, I hope to be able to have him on to announce it. So we'll just leave it at that. But the other thing he said that leads into our first story, uh, since I was driving across Missouri, Mm -hmm. he said, uh, well, did you know that the uh, Missouri State Police consider you a terrorist? And I looked at him really funny. I said, what? Because I I had been sequestered from information for about a week. Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah. He says, you've got that Ron Paul sticker out there on your car? I said, yeah. He says, you know, uh, anybody that has Ron Paul or Chuck Baldwin or Bob Barr, has now been recently announced that they are considered a uh, potential militia-type terrorist threat by the Missouri State Police, and I thought, no, that can't be. Yeah,
3: you couldn't when you first hear that, you think that's fake.
2: Well, yeah, yeah. but you know, Brother Tom tells me I know to believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't question it, mm-hmm. but it still blew my mind. I was like something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. So I had to wait till I got home and uh, driving home and looked up, and sure enough, uh, yeah, I first found it on some sites of places that people. Poo-Poo was saying that they don't know their story, like InfoWars and yeah. dot .com and things like that, who had a detailed expose, and in fact, had had some uh, Missouri police whistleblowers send him some of these documents. Yeah, he actually
3: had, had the documents The documents were on. loaded up there. Yeah. from
2: uh, They had come from Department of Homeland Security, surprisingly mm-hmm. or not, from the feds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had gone to Missouri police, and sure enough, there was, not black and white, said that uh, people who were likely to have affiliation with militia groups and be a danger were Ron Paul supporters, Chuck Baldwin, Bob Barr, uh, people in the pro life movement, Constitution Party movement, the second amendment movement, any of this kind of stuff were all considered dangerous. Yeah. So it's not rumors anymore. It's not no, like no, we no. suspect that they're watching us. It's it's a reality now.
3: Well, and what's what's interesting in reading that InfoWars article, they know they they made note that uh, one of the reasons that the Missouri State Police were reporting this was that because they had noticed an uptick in the data from of of terrorist activities from militia groups. What, what kind of activities? Well, that's what I was getting into. Uh, I thought about that after what? I read that. After I read that for a while, I started thinking. You, as you know, I've been like fooling around with some statistics stuff yeah. lately. I started thinking about that, and I thought, now if you define a if you define a terrorist event as uh, uh, some illegal event where somebody used violence or coercion. To uh, influence political intent, I would, I, I don't believe that. You know, I don't believe right. what they're saying. I have to say that. Right. I have to see that before I believe it. I'm going to say out, right. out of hand, I think that is falsehood. Right. Um. Now, if you, if you say that, um, if you're letting the police define what that is, then you're automatically sort of data mining because you're letting them haphazardly, you know, define what they feel as a terrorist Whatever activity. is convenient yeah. for them. So, and if you're defining it, you know, further, like any sort of thing, any sort of illegal activity that includes a, uh, you know, a third party, somebody who votes, you know, one, mm-hmm. one of the mainstream third parties, then again, you're sort of data mining, because what you're doing is you're, you know, you're you're creating some sort of, you know,
2: you're a false positive situation. Mm-hmm. So, well, so yeah.
3: Like, the, it, all of that doesn't make any sense.
2: Well, no, I mean, I would think I'd hear in the news if there were major events like something like Oklahoma City or something yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm not, you know, the, the main invasions I've heard is when the federal troops have invaded and mm-hmm. took all those children away from their mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the,
3: that or that other thing where they were practicing uh, door-to-door uh, uh, gun confiscation right. up there in April. Right, mm-hmm.
2: or... or uh, you know, uh, like I said, going in going in there and taking my kids or, or setting fire to a place where mm-hmm. people worship and stuff like that. That's yeah. been the that's what I call terrorism, but there we go. Now we're definitely on the list. But anyway, I, I, I look to see if there's any independent verification. Because mm-hmm. people always taint things like InfoWars, even mm-hmm. though they're incredibly accurate and right, much more so than the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Well we we need independent confirmation. So I'll look yeah. up, find this story on the Kansas City Star, uh, and they're quoting it from the Associated Press. Uh, dateline columbus missouri uh, missouri police target paul baldwin supporters a new document meant to help missouri law enforcement agencies identify militia members or domestic terrorists has drawn criticism for some of the warning signs mentioned the february 20th report called the modern militia movement mentions such red flags as political bumper stickers for third party candidates such as u.s representative ron paul who ran for president last year Talk of conspiracy theories, such as the plan for a superhighway linking Canada to Mexico.
3: That's you can go and drive. You and can go that. see it. It's right there. It's you not, can. Ah, this is crazy. Ron Paul mentions insanity. it in the
2: in the debates. Mm-hmm. Okay. And possession of subversive literature. Okay. Such Pro- as probably a future quake uh, D- CD mm-hmm. or DVD. Um, it seems like they want to stifle political thought," said Roger Webb, president of the University of Missouri campus libertarians. There are a lot of third parties out there, and none of them express any violence. In fact, if you join the Libertarian Party, one of the things you sign in your membership application is that you don't support violence as a means to any ends. Hmm. But state law enforcement officials said the report is being misinterpreted. Lieutenant John Hotz of the uh, Missouri State Highway Militia, uh, excuse me, the Missouri Heights Stateway Highway Patrol, <laughs> Freudian slip, said that the report comes from publicly available trend data on militias. It was compiled by the Missouri Information Analysis Center, a fusion center in uh, Jefferson City that combines resources from the Federal Department of Homeland Security, surprise, surprise, and other agencies.
3: Well, see, that gets back to what I was saying. I I really want to see how they came about at this data because off the top of my head, it seems like the only way to really come to that conclusion is, is through, you know, some sort of a data mining false positive type of yeah. situation.
2: This this is intent intentional suppression of um dissenting opinion, political mm-hmm. opinion. Uh he says, um I see here's here's what he says. Uh the center which opened in two thousand five was set up to collect local intelligence to better combat terrorism and other criminal activity, he said. All this is an educational thing, Hot said of the report. Troopers have been shot by members of groups, so it's our job to let law enforcement officers know what the trends are in the modern militia movement. Well, wait a minute.
3: I think there has
2: to be some better way to organize the data to show – I I, I wouldn't even take you that serious. I wouldn't even spend any more time thinking – they don't have any data to show most of this. Okay? How how many big major terrorist attacks have you heard in the last few years?
3: Well, that's what I'm trying to point out for okay. our listeners. This doesn't – none yeah. of this makes any sense.
2: But Tim Neal, a military veteran and delegate to last year's state GOP convention, was shocked by the report's contents. I was going down the list and thinking, check, that's me, he said. I'm a Ron Paul supporter, check. I talk about the North American Union, check. I've got the America Freedom to Fascism video loaned out to somebody right now, which is also on the list. Mm. Uh, So that means I'm a domestic terrorist because I've got a video about the Federal Reserve. Neil, who has a Ron Paul bumper sticker on his car, as does Dr. Future, said the next time he's pulled over by a police officer, he won't know whether it's because he was speeding or because of his political views. If a police officer is pulling me over with my family in the car and he sees a bumper sticker on my vehicle that has been specifically identified as one that an extremist would have in their vehicle, the guy is probably going to be pretty apprehensive and not thinking in a rational manner. Neil said, and this guy's walking up to my vehicle with a gun.
3: Well, yeah, let's let's pause and consider that, folks. If you if you vote for any of these third party candidates, and you, you know the trooper that has pulled you over for speeding legitimately mm-hmm. or wrong or out tail taillight he's an armed person of the law and he already suspects you you know of, right. of wrongdoing
2: you know you're a potential problem so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how much more likely does that make him to shoot you and he thinks i mean i presume they would think that would give them grounds for a search and seizure and oh i didn't simply think because of that, of that wow. list I, and Simply because it's something you have on the back of
3: your car. I was thinking, gosh, I was thinking more along the lines of, now, that the only way that this person could be impartial was this, if the costume that he put on made him some sort of superhuman <laughs> person. But I just can't see yeah. that happening.
2: Well, let me finish here. It says, but Hots, who for, from this organization, mm-hmm. said, using factors in the report to determine whether someone could be a terrorist is not profiling. He said people who display signs or bumper stickers from third-party groups are not in danger of harassment from police. It's giving the makeup of militia members and their political beliefs. Hot said the report, it's not saying that everybody supports these candidates as involved in militia. It's not even saying that all militias are bad.
3: I, I think it's high time that somebody defines the word profile, profiling, because that gets thrown around. Well, it's like it can...
2: obscenity. I know it when I see it. And that's profiling. Uh, let me just mention some more data on that. Yeah, yeah, we had um, talked about this, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. I called this group, this MIEC group, directly, mm-hmm. spoke to a Sergeant Jason Clark who handles their media stuff. Yes. Um, tried to arrange an on-air interview, thought we were going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to have to go on recollection. So ladies sure. and gentlemen, take this for what it's worth. This mm-hmm. is my recollection of our conversation. Uh, when I talked to Sergeant Clark, whom I appreciate talking to me, by the way, uh my sense from talking to him, he was very exasperated, uh, mm-hmm. seemed extremely nervous. Uh, he was – and you could hear the phones ringing off the hook in the background. And I did not even tell them what I was calling about. I just asked to speak to him. And he said uh, – he says, well, the phone's ringing off the hook. He says, we're getting all these calls about this. Everybody's wanting to know about it. We think everybody's misinterpreting it. We don't even know the information that's out there. And if it's Wait legitimate – is he the
3: media relations people, and he doesn't know the media – what?
2: Yeah. Well, that's what it, that, he's saying. He doesn't know what's been sent out there and pointed at. But remember, I didn't even tell him what I was calling about. So – and – and uh, This whole thing he sounds said like all his, a crazy – He said all his superiors were meeting right at the time and trying to sort all this stuff out. So then I explained to him that, well, in fact, I was interested in it. And he said, oh, well, what kind of news source did you get? How credibility is your news source? I said, well, I got it from the Kansas City Star. The main newspaper in Kansas City, and they were quoting the Associated Press. And he says, "Well, he says we don't know what these other people wrote in there, if it's legitimate or not, or or, or whatever." And I said, "Well, it's in the main newspaper there." And uh, his quote was something to the effect that um, I don't have any uh, desire or interest in reading newspapers. Well,
3: is this? Just- are you making this up? I'm
2: not making this up. He is the media specialist for the state, for this group. But this is... And he said he had no desire to see newspapers. This is
3: like some sort of weird, like, Ayn Rand Brazil I, thing. I don't know other than... Like, this is my job, but I have said, no intention of doing it. He,
2: he told me, he said, he says, I'm I'm positive, I'll be able to get you an interview, mm-hmm. but he says, I need to ask oh, my great, suppliers. I'd love to hear what but he, he has says, to Well, say. wait, 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 the rest of the story. Yeah. He says, i got to go talk to my superior. They're in the meeting right now, but he says, I don't think we probably problem. I'll call you back today. Mm-hmm. So, which I appreciated him, level sure. with me. So yeah. then I waited, never heard anything. Uh, so I called back today, mm-hmm. got a hold of him, had to remind him who it was. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, well, what about that interview you said about doing? He says, well, the uh, superiors have now decided that we're not going to give any interviews. And he says, because the superiors won't let us. That's what he told me. And he says, we're not going to give any interviews on it. He's a media guy. I, I said, Is there gonna be any comments? He says there may be something on the MIAc website, there may be a statement, but we've been told not to give any interviews on this at all. And um I he says, Well we'll answer any questions you have, but we're not gonna do any interviews. And so I asked him, I said, were um and, and and he still said, you know, we don't know about the the veracity of the information mm-hmm. flowing out. I said, Well, And I said, well, can I get a copy of the original to compare? And he says, no, you're not allowed to have it. The public's not allowed to have the original one. But I said, the fake one's already out there. I said, if it's causing you know, mistaken concern, wouldn't it behoove you to show it by showing the real one out there to show that it's wrong? Mm -hmm. He says, they cannot release it. Uh, So I asked him, I says, well, does it uh, say in there explicitly, Ron Paul's name, Chuck Baldwin... Uh, you know, libertarians, Uh, Bob Barr, mm-hmm. are those listed by names in there or something, association? And mm-hmm. he said yes.
3: Oh, okay. He so, said
2: yes. So that is in the authentic one. So if any of you all whoa. think this is some kind of doctored thing, all I can do is I can tell you from word of mouth and them directly to me, from the group, it is in there. Uh, uh This is heavy. It is heavy. There's – I don't – I don't want to cast stones, so I'm just going to sort of remain silent, but their behavior is really weird. This is the beginning of heavy duty. Well, you know what I'm taking? This is my commentary, okay? Yeah, lay it on From there. reading on it, the, the tone mm-hmm. of exasperation I heard in them, I'm sensing this stuff came down from the feds. They'd had no thought about it. You know, these guys aren't normally thinking about this kind of stuff as mm-hmm. far as, like, thinking about the ramifications. They just do what they're told. Mm-hmm. Suddenly something got out. It was actually some Missouri policemen. Mm-hmm. Who who were heroes, who were whistleblowers and sending out anonymously. Yeah. Well, thank
3: you, whoever and, you are. Yes, you are, and thank you for listener. taking your thank risk you. and uh,
2: taking a risk on behalf of the public. And so you they can were called sleep flat-footed. on my couch if
3: you lose your job, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they've been put in this spot. I mean, yeah. they've been they they now they're they're having to defend what's in here. And I think it's good to shine the spotlight. But I tell you, this is the beginning of bad stuff. I mean, it's been going on behind the scenes, but now we know it's it's for real. Any naysayers? Open. Yeah. This is this is really uh really going to go to say they mentioned the Constitution Party by name mm-hmm. as being someone they were concerned about people in the pro life Oh, I asked him. I said the pro life movement included in there? Yes. Anybody who's pro life. Well, oh what he says is well, we're just looking for militia people and we know there's an association between the two. We we know that they support those groups. We know the militia groups support people like Chuck Baldwin and Ron Paul in pro life and second amendment and stuff like that. So, wait a minute, wait a minute. The pe-
3: that last thing is very in- discouraging. The idea that they actually, people that support the Second Amendment could be terrorists? Yes. So, yes. somebody that somebody that's looking to uphold the Supports the Constitution. Almost
2: yeah, okay. well, everything we talked about here was stuff related to support for our, our founding document, the Constitution. Yeah, 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 I know. But now they've. And now that's considered. Now
3: it's baldly explicit. Well, that know. tells
2: you that the federal government. Uh, considers itself hostile to the Constitution when they find those who cling to it are on the other side. Mm. That basically expresses yes. their position about the Constitution.
3: Well, I guess I guess one would have to wonder who's, you know, if a government has been has decided to become hostile to its founding
2: documents, and uh, you know, rule through
3: force majeure.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, do you have any doubt anymore? Maybe set on the fence. You realizing, particularly Christians out there, I'm talking to. Do you mm-hmm. realize? There's coming a the time you're going to have to make a decision. Can I share? I know we're just a couple of minutes. Can I no, share no, no. what go Chuck ahead. Baldwin said? Please. He said something this, Please. this morning. And by the way, um, if you go to constitutionparty.com and you go to the uh, Missouri chapter, mm-hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a lady there who actually is trying to put together. If you look there, you'll find their phone numbers. I'm going to try to find out here. Uh, possibly a demonstration at the Missouri. I don't know if it's a courthouse or legislature or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, watch that website. Go try to contact her. I encourage every one of our Futurian listeners out there, go if there's any way possible. Uh, I want to go if there's Field any way trip. possible. Uh, this is, yeah, we need to go. We all need to go. It's coming to a head. Um, this may help bring it to the public's attention, what we're up against. Mm-hmm. So I just want to encourage everybody to go. But here's a few comments from Chuck Baldwin today. He says, uh, Missouri State Police think you and I are terrorists. Uh, thanks to a concerned Missouri State policeman, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host stated he was alerted last week to a secret uh, Missouri State police report that categorized supporters of Congressman Ron Paul, Bob Barr, and myself as militia-influenced terrorists. Uh, the report, he said, instructs the Missouri police to be on the lookout for supporters de- displaying bumper stickers and other paraphernalia associated with the Constitutional Campaign for Liberty and Libertarian Parties. Uh, Ignoring the threat of Muslim terrorists, the Mississippi Information Analysis Center, MAAC report, focuses on the so-called militia movement and conflates it with supporters of Ron Paul, Chuck Baldwin, Bob Barr, and the so-called patriot movement and other political activist organizations, opposed to the North American Union and the New World Order. Uh, this report is not original, of course. During the Clinton administration, a Phoenix Federal Bureau of Investigation and Joint Terrorism Task Force explicitly designated defenders of the Constitution as right-wing extremists. However, the MIAC report significantly expands on earlier documents and is the first known document to actually name names.
3: Well, here's a question: Would they? That, and I know we're about ready within yeah. the last minute, so well, sorry about that. Does that mean that? Does that mean that like our founding fathers were terrorists?
2: Well, they would be considered now if they were now around. Yeah, I mean, this that's they're acting really, like King George right now, basically, is their, their yeah, that's really perspective. Yeah,
3: that's sort of my point. Like, you would have to if you went to a school and talked about this law, you would have to have to, to be logical, justify George Washington as a terrorist. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I, we got more to talk about this, but we got to bring Merv in. Merv, Merv. Merv in, Merv Mervin. Merv, would you come <laughs> in? Sorry, I'm worked up here, and come tell our listeners how they can contact us here at Future Quake.
6: Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, I'm sorry we're
2: out of time. I wanted to read more about what Chip Owen says, but uh, he's going to be on the air oh, shortly. We're going to record great. in about a week. Uh, he'll be on to comment about this. Awesome. So any other last words? Um, rice and beans. With a little, bu- little bit of oil. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned to your radio. Um, check out Constitution Party website. They, we all need each other. Um, please, make a position. Take a stand. You won't be able to later. God bless you. Until we talk again, may your future be very bright. Have a good day.
0: Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. quake.
1: There's revolution, sweeping it like a fresh new breeze. Let the old world make the heat, to death and up.